Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. There are two things I love in this world. The first is that rush of adrenaline you get when you're on the back of your motorcycle and driving with purpose. The world soars past you and the wind howls in your ears. Your heart races and it leaves you with such a feeling of excitement. For a moment, it's like you're untouchable. As I sped through the streets, I felt almost drunk on the adrenaline. Glendale Park was just a few minutes away, so I had time to savor this. No matter what, I would be early, and I'd be able to help the other members of the Protectors set up. This would be our most ambitious operation of the year, and I didn't want to let my team down. Yet, in the moment, as I weaved through cars on my way to the park, all I cared about was the adrenaline rushing through my veins. It was a little joy that I got to savor. As I pulled up to the parking lot, I slowed myself to a stop, only briefly to show an attendant my pass. He nodded at me and directed me to a spot where I could park my bike. Once it was stowed away, I dropped the kickstand and removed my helmet. I checked the side view mirror to make sure my hair looked decent before I tied it back into a ponytail. I dusted off my leather jacket and I donned my white domino mask. In an instant, the mild-mannered Andrea Andrews vanished and was replaced by someone else entirely. The second thing I love is justice. And with that mask on, that was exactly what I stood for. When people cry out in need, their call will always be answered by me, for I am a champion of justice. I am the one who will reach out to those who need it. I am the beacon, and I am a superhero. Every year, the Palmer Foundation holds their annual War on Hunger in Glendale Park. It's a wonderful event, hosted by a wonderful charity. Most people might not know the Palmer Foundation, they're more local to Toronto and aren't quite as big as the United Way or some of the other nonprofits that combat homelessness, but they've made quite an impact. They run shelters, soup kitchens, and numerous food and clothes drives, but the War on Hunger was their biggest outing. They set up a space in the park with a few carnival rides, food trucks, vendors, and live music. The cost of admission was a donation to the food drive, plus the ticket sales for the rides went towards buying food and supplies for those in need. It always drew in plenty of kids, and that was where me and the protectors came in. Beacon! A voice called out to me as soon as I had arrived, and I spotted a tall man dressed like an 80s action movie hero. That was Captain Man. His real name was Brian Richardson, and he was the founder of the protectors. Brian and I went back a long time. He was a good man and one that I was proud to call a friend. Brian, you're early, I said as I approached him. He'd set up our tent from the looks of it. Maybe I was too late to help with that after all. Yeah, well, me and James were up, so we figured we'd get started, Brian said a bit sheepishly. Randall just got here. Not sure where he went, but he's around here somewhere. He looked around, but the only other superhero we saw was a man in red spandex with a bright yellow cape over by one of the food trucks. 
That was James, or Super Dad, just your average, formerly, single father, trying to set a good example for his son. I could tell Brian was checking out his ass, but given the fact that they'd been married last year, I figured James wouldn't mind. To be fair, the spandex really did flatter him. James was kind of hot. Any sign of Casey? I asked. No, not yet. It's still early, though, and she said she's coming. By the way, I got you something. Brian pulled something out of his belt, a small envelope. Happy 40th. Welcome to the club. I said no gifts, I scolded, but I still took the card with a grin. It had a little dog with a tail that wagged back and forth on it, and it was absolutely adorable. Inside, there was $40. Just in case you felt up to taking any road trips, Brian said. You know, take a break, have a vacation, get away from it all for a little while. Is that a hint? I asked. A little bit, yeah, he replied. Come on, you could take some time off work, we could go riding like we used to. James and I were thinking of doing a cross-country this August. I thought maybe you might want to join. It'd be like it used to be when we were kids. Hmm. Maybe, I said thoughtfully. I stared at the money before pocketing it. Then I gave Brian a kiss on the cheek. Thank you for trying to rescue me from my workday, Captain Man. I said in a gruff, teasing voice that brought a smile to his face. He nudged me playfully. All right, smartass, just think about it, okay? Okay. I'll think about it. James was coming over to us with some freshly purchased food truck lunch. I noticed he'd gotten something for me as well. We had about an hour before the war on hunger officially opened. Plenty of time to eat. When I was a kid, I loved superheroes. Captain America, Batman, Spider-Man, and even Sailor Moon. I'd read the comics. I'd watched the cartoons. I was obsessed, even into my teenage years. It was always something of a power fantasy, I guess. Beyond the endless, muscular men in spandex and the voluptuous, scantily clad women, there was the idea that anyone could be a hero. The best superheroes were always those who knew what it was like to be the other guy. The ones who had been meek and helpless before, they were gifted with their powers. They chose to be heroes when they could have been selfish or greedy. They made the conscious choice to do the right thing, even if it wasn't easy. At the end of the day, many of them were just good people struggling to do the right thing, just because they could, and that was what always stuck with me. That was why, when Brian told me he was forming a little band of real-life superheroes to combat homelessness in our area, I was immediately on board. Maybe what we were trying to do wasn't as epic or incredible as what they did in the comics, but I always believed that even ordinary people can make a difference if they tried. Even if all we did was run some community food and clothing drives, help out at soup kitchens, and support larger events like the War on Hunger, that was enough for me. As the War on Hunger opened up, Brian and I stayed in the tent, handing out pamphlets. James and Randall went around posing for photographs with the children. Their eyes always lit up whenever they saw a real-life superhero. I even got a few photographs in myself. Still, I couldn't focus my full attention on the music or the people coming by. There were five members of the Protectors, and an hour into the war on hunger, it wasn't lost on me that only four of us had shown up. Brian was right beside me. I could see James in his red spandex posing for photographs with a couple of children. Randall, or the Owl, was over at another tent. 
He wore a heavy brown trench coat with a ski mask and welding goggles, so he wasn't exactly easy to miss. It seemed like we weren't the only superheroes there. I recognized the women in the tent as a group called Aphrodite's Handmaidens, and I wasn't surprised to see them. Like us, they were a regular attendee to the War on Hunger, and I was happy to see them back. There were six of them, all named after Greek goddesses, although Aphrodite was the only one I could pick out of a crowd. She was a tall, beautiful blonde with long, flowing hair. She didn't wear a mask, but I didn't know her real name. Our paths never really crossed, so we didn't exactly know each other socially, but I knew that they generally worked to raise awareness of domestic violence. I respected that, and I respected them. Anyone backing that cause is all right in my book. Seeing Randall talking to them wasn't exactly suspicious either. I did notice them looking over towards our tent, and Aphrodite had a look of concern written across her face before she and Randall turned to leave together. Casey was nowhere to be seen, though. We called her Shelter. Like James, she wore a brightly colored spandex outfit with a flowing cape. She was the newest member of our group, but we'd known her from before then. It wasn't that long ago, when she'd been one of the people in need of our help. Her life had changed for the better in the past two years, though. She'd kicked her drug habit, found a steady job, and a place to live and raise her daughter, Annabelle. I'd sent Casey a text, asking if everything was okay, but she hadn't replied. As far as I could tell, she hadn't even read it, and that didn't sit right with me. I knew Casey. We'd become good friends ever since she joined the Protectors, and I knew that this wasn't like her. Our cause meant more to her than it did to anyone else. She would never have blown us off like that. Brian looked over at me, checking my phone for the umpteenth time and frowned. Still nothing? he asked. He hadn't said much about Casey's absence, but I knew it still weighed on him. I'd caught him checking his own phone. He must have sent her his own text. No, I replied. I stood up. I'm going to try calling her. Let me know if you reach her, Brian said. He watched me as I went out behind the tent and walked a bit further into the park to get away from the music as I dialed Casey's number. The phone didn't even ring. All I got was a message. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. If you feel you are receiving this message in error, please check the number and try your call again. I looked down at my phone. The number was right. It had always been right. I frowned before sending another text message. My last ones had gone through. This one should have too. It didn't. An uneasy feeling had entered my chest. I looked back towards our tent before returning to it. Brian, try calling Casey. He looked up at me, silently inquiring. Just do it, I said as I checked my emails. Nothing from Casey. Brian made the phone call and I saw his expression sour as he put the phone to his ear. His eyes darted over to me. Out of service, he said. Did you see any emails from her? I asked. No, I already checked. Shit, do you think everything's all right? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. I turned to leave and Brian got up to follow me. Wait, do you want me to come with, or... No, someone needs to watch the tent, I said. It's fine. I'll just check in on her and make sure everything's all right. I'll be right back, I promise. Brian hesitated for a moment before nodding. 
All right, text me if you need anything. I will. With that, I headed back to my motorcycle, trying to ignore the nervous fluttering of my heart and the sinking feeling in my stomach. I double-timed it over to Casey's apartment. Sometimes I'd watch Annabelle when Casey had to work weird hours, so I had everything I needed to get myself inside. The building itself was old and run down, but I knew that the rent was cheap and the neighborhood was safe enough. There were no elevators, so I took the stairs two at a time until I found Casey's door. I knocked on it. Casey? I called. No answer. I knocked again, but there was nothing on the other side of the door. This was a Saturday. Annabelle wouldn't have been at school, so she should have at least been home. I couldn't think of where else they could have gone. I hesitated for a moment before I reached for my key. I didn't want to go inside unless I had to. The idea of invading their privacy didn't exactly sit well with me, but I didn't see much of a choice otherwise. I knocked one last time. Silence. I'm coming in, I called before I slid the key into the lock. At least I warned them. The door swung open and I stepped inside. Casey's apartment was usually very neat, almost obsessively so. If she'd seen what I saw when I'd walked through that door, she would have lost her crap. The apartment was in violent disarray. A table was broken, the sofa was pushed to the side, broken glass crunched under my boot as I stepped inside. I looked down to see flecks of blood on the carpet, and it most certainly was not mine. My heart began to race. Something was very, very wrong here. Casey, I called. The heavy silence that filled the apartment was, in itself, an answer. I tore through the apartment, heading down the hall, terrified of what I'd see. I paused in front of Annabelle's bedroom. It was empty, but it didn't look like the struggle had spread to there. Casey's bedroom was next, and I threw open her door to see an empty bed. No sign of her. No sign of anyone. I stood there for a few moments in her bedroom, trying to think of what to do before I felt my phone buzz. My heart skipped a beat, and I quickly tore it out of my pocket only to find a message from Brian. Did you find her? I didn't reply. I just stared dumbly down at the messages before looking up at the bed. Finally, I turned around, opening up the dial pad of my phone and doing the only thing I could. I called 911. The police took my statement and sent me on my way, but they did nothing to set my mind at ease. I texted Brian about what I'd found, and as I left the police station, I wasn't exactly surprised to find him out front, waiting for me. He was still dressed in his costume, although he'd washed the face paint off. Andrea, he hurried over to me. Did you hear anything new? Do they know where she went? No, I replied tonelessly. She's just... gone. Far as I can tell, they don't... know any more than we do. They asked about her drug habit. I think they figure that has something to do with it. Casey wasn't backsliding, was she? Brian asked. Casey was clean. My voice was a little sharper than I'd intended it to be, and Brian shrank back suddenly. She was sober. She had it together. Whatever's going on, it's not because she started using again. She knew better. Okay, okay. I believe you, Brian said. Let's just hope they find her and Annabelle safely. I nodded. Yeah, let's hope.
I rubbed at my temples and sighed. I think I'm going to call it a day. I'm sorry, I know there's the... It's fine, Brian interrupted. I'm going back to the war on hunger. I'll talk to James and Randall, let them know what's going on. You go home and get some rest. I'll come check on you tonight, okay? I nodded again, and Brian patted me on the shoulder, his effort to reassure me. Yeah, that sounds nice. I'll see you later. I pulled away and headed for my bike. My feet felt heavy. There was an unfamiliar weight in my stomach that almost made me feel sick. I knew it wouldn't go away anytime soon. I didn't hear anything about Casey after that. Come Monday, I was back at work and back in my same old routine. Being a real-life superhero is fulfilling, but it doesn't pay the bills. No, just like everyone else, I've got a 9-to-5 gig. I do like my job, I really do. I'm a graphic designer, although I mostly make ads. I suppose I'm not as successful as I could be, but I get paid well. My company takes care of me. I work with good people and I have carved out a life for myself. I'm as happy as I can be. At least, I was. Casey and Annabelle hadn't strayed far from my mind. I was more than just worried about them. I was scared. I'd never had a friend just vanish like that before, and judging by the state the apartment had been in, I was sure they hadn't left willingly. No, it was obvious that something had happened to Casey, and I had no idea just what it was or how I could help her. All through the day, a dark cloud of worry hung over me. That pit in my stomach hadn't faded. I hated that feeling, that lingering sense of helplessness, the idea that someone I cared about could be injured or dead and I couldn't help them. I usually stayed late at work. I didn't on that day. I felt more exhausted than usual, so I left right at five. All I wanted to do was go home and sleep. Maybe I could stop worrying, just for a moment, if I did. I didn't bother saying goodbye to anyone. I just packed up my laptop and took the elevator down to the main floor. My car was parked in the parking structure out back. I headed straight for it, and as I did, I saw a figure standing in front of it. I paused, watching as they looked up at me. A cigarette hung from their fingers, and they exhaled smoke. Outside of his costume, I barely recognized him. He had a thin mustache and plastic-rimmed glasses. His jawline was chiseled, and his eyes were wide and studious. Randall? Hey, Andrea, he said. He took a drag on his cigarette. I heard about Casey. I know you two are close, so I wanted to check in on you. You could have called, I said. I felt some of the anxious tension draining from my shoulders. I hadn't realized I'd been so on edge. Not sure I'd trust a phone call right about now, Randall replied. He leaned against my car. I was wondering if I should try to catch you at home, but I don't know. I don't know where's safe where isn't, or how screwed we all are. Excuse me? I looked up at him. Up close, Randall looked off. There were dark circles under his eyes, as if he hadn't slept in a while. You were in Casey's apartment, right? He asked. Brian told me you said it looked like there'd been a struggle. Is that true? Yeah. Nobody struggles when they're leaving their apartment voluntarily. Randall said. His eyes met mine, and mine were narrowing. What do you know? I asked. 
Randall paused. He chose his words carefully before at last he spoke in a trembling voice. More than I should, I think. He glanced around as if making sure we were alone. Casey found something the other day, something weird, and now she's missing and, uh, damn it, damn it, I think I'm next. Wait, why? I asked. What did she find? Randall hesitated. I saw him draw back a step as if he wasn't sure how to continue. I grabbed him by the shoulder to stop him. He looked up at me with wide, panicked eyes. He looked scared. I'd never seen him scared like this before. Randall, obviously you're asking for help, and if I can help you, you know that I will. But I need to know what's going on. What did Casey find? It was a woman, Randall said quietly. About a week ago, she asked me to watch Annabelle while she picked up a late shift. I guess you were working late or something because she doesn't usually ask me. I figured my boys would be happy to see her, and I didn't think much of it. Then Casey comes back that evening, and she's got this woman with her. Damn it, Andrea. That girl. He took another drag on his cigarette. His hands were shaking. She was... alive, but... She wasn't normal. God, I can't explain it. Something was wrong with her. The way she spoke, the way she acted. Casey said she found her wandering around naked. She was all scratched up like she'd been beaten or something. I didn't know what to do, so I reached out to Aphrodite, you know, the, the handmaidens and all that. I figured she might know a place where we could take her. The girl obviously wasn't well, so it made sense. And then what happened? I asked. Well, Aphrodite showed up. We took her to a shelter and they called the police. The cops asked us a few questions, although there wasn't much any of us could tell them. That was it. Did you tell Brian? I asked. Randall slowly shook his head. Oh, no, I, I, I didn't really think to. I didn't even think about the protectors. I don't know if Casey said anything. I don't think she did. But I'm sure as hell not telling Brian now. He and James have a kid. If I'm right and Casey disappeared because of what she found. I don't want to drag someone's kid into this. What makes you think the girl had anything to do with her disappearance? I asked. You didn't see the girl, Andrea, Randall said. She wasn't some homeless kid. She was an escapee from something. The marks on her back. She looked like she'd been whipped. She was wearing a damn dog collar. She always sat on the floor. She flinched every time I so much as looked at her. I don't know who or what the hell she ran away from, but it was not something any of us want to screw with. I don't think it's coincidence that Casey vanished a week after finding her. And neither does Aphrodite. She asked me about Casey at the War on Hunger, and she sounded friggin' scared. Do you think she knows more? I asked. Maybe. She wouldn't tell me on Saturday, but we're meeting tonight. She's coming over to my place, Randall said. What about the police? I asked. Did you go to them? Of course I went to the police. They said that there wasn't any evidence to justify my paranoia. They didn't take me seriously. Doesn't that sound a little suspicious to you? 
Look, I don't know how deep this goes, but if it's half as bad as I think it is, I think we'll need help, and I don't know who else to trust. I barely know Aphrodite and her friends, but I know you. I trust you, but Casey was your friend, and I know you cared about Annabelle. I paused, taking in all that he'd said. What time are you meeting Aphrodite? I finally asked. Nine, after my boys go to bed. You'll come? Yeah, I said. I'll come. If Aphrodite knows something, maybe we should hear it. If it's big enough, we can take it to the police. Maybe we can find Casey and Annabelle. Yeah, Randall nodded. Yeah, I hope so. I arrived at Randall's place at nine that evening. I'd taken my bike and parked it at the curb by his house. I spotted a cop car just a short ways down the street, and in the pale street lights, I could see two figures sitting inside. I wondered if maybe they'd taken Randall's fears seriously after all. I hoped they did. I took off my helmet and made my way up his walkway. I could see lights on in his house, and I thought I caught a shadow moving past one of the downstairs windows, near where the living room was. Somebody was obviously home. I knocked on the door as I got close, and it swung open a little bit as soon as my fist touched it. I could hear the TV on inside. Randall? I asked. I pushed the door all the way open and stepped inside. There was no reply. A sickening sensation of deja vu struck me. That familiar weight in my stomach returned. Randall! I followed the sounds of the TV into the living room, and there I found Randall. He sat in an armchair on the far side of the room. His head was slumped to one side, and his eyes stared lifelessly at me from behind his glasses. I could see the wound in his torso, and the dark blood surrounding it. I know I cried out his name as I ran to him, hoping like hell that somehow he was still alive. I pressed my fingers against his neck, looking for a pulse, and I could tell from the coldness of his skin that it was useless. He'd been dead long before I got there. From behind me I heard a sound, a shuffle of movement followed by a low metallic ring. From the corner of my eye I saw something coming towards me and I moved. Just a split second later, a steel blade sliced through the air where I'd been mere moments ago. I stumbled backwards, eyes darting to catch a glimpse of my new assailant. I was greeted by a sight I'd never thought I'd see. A dark figure stood before Randall's body, and they whipped around to face me. They wore a tightly bundled black trench coat, and in one hand they held a sword. Their face was obscured by a realistic white goat's head mask. The expressionless eyes of it stared lifelessly into my own, as the other person and I surveyed each other. The goat man raised the sword, pointing it directly at me, and they didn't need to speak to make the meaning of the gesture clear. They were there to kill me, just like they'd killed Randall. Of all the ways I envisioned dying, being murdered by a sword-wielding goat man in Randall's living room had never once crossed my mind. I stood there like a deer in the headlights, unsure how to react, until they charged. The blade swung from my neck, and I scrambled out of the way in a blind panic. I spotted a lamp close to me and I hurled it towards the goat man. It shattered against their coat, but didn't seem to do much else. The goat man stood, sword in hand, 
and eyeing me carefully, watching to see what my next move would be. There was no way I could have made it to the front door, not without getting too close to comfort to that sword. The kitchen was closer, and I darted towards that. The goat man followed. On the stove, I could see a frying pan, and I grabbed it. I swung it wildly and felt it connect with the head of my assailant. I heard a muffled grunt of pain from beneath that mask, and I saw them flinch. It left me with an opening. I kicked one leg out from under them, forcing the goat man down on a knee. They tried to turn their head to look at me, but I gave them another whack with the pan. Before I dropped it, they made a grab for the handle of their sword. I could hear a frustrated growl coming from beneath that mask. It was skewed, denying the person inside their vision, but they kept a death grip on that sword. They rose, slamming me into the counter as I tried to wrench it from their grasp. They tried to bring the blade up to tear it away from me, and I forced the blade forward. It pierced the wall behind the counter and stuck fast. The goat man's fist came up to punch me in the jaw. My grip on the sword loosened, and they pushed me aside. I stumbled backwards, into the kitchen table, as the goat man tried to pull their sword out of the wall. I charged them, grabbing them by the midsection and slamming them into the counter behind them. The goat man slammed their head into mine. The mask didn't soften the blow much. They need me in the stomach before pushing me off of them. I stumbled back a few steps, winded and struggling to catch my breath. On the counter beside me, I spotted the knife block and snatched one out of it. The goat man adjusted their mask before studying me. I wasn't sure if they were hesitating or just thinking. Part of me genuinely hoped they'd turn and run. My heart was racing. My hands were trembling with my own fear, and I could see the knife quaking with me. Only a few seconds passed before they came for me with a confident, purposeful strut. I didn't have a choice. I didn't let myself think. I moved to drive the knife into their stomach. I felt one of their hands on my wrist, gripping it tight, and stopping me from bringing the knife any further. They forced my arm up towards them, twisting it and weakening my grip before they took the knife for themselves and drove it into my shoulder. That white-hot pain was worse than anything else I'd ever felt. I know I screamed in the instant before I lost my breath, as they kneed me in the stomach and threw me to the ground in a heap. I clutched at my shoulder, feeling my own hot blood leaking out of my new wound. The hilt still jutted out of me, and I frantically tried to crawl away. I looked back, just in time to see the goat man tearing their sword out of the wall. They turned in the vacant eyes of their mask, fixated on me again. There was no way I could fight back. I was actually going to die here. I saw movement behind them, and something struck the goat man in the head. They stumbled back before whirling around to see who had attacked them. I recognized the blonde who stood in the kitchen with us, even though she was out of costume. Though I had never formally met Aphrodite before, this was a hell of a first introduction. She leered at the goat man intensely, a tire iron held up at the ready to strike them again. Through the doorway to the kitchen, I saw two other women had joined us, each with their own makeshift weapon. One of them ran to my side, standing between me and the goat man. They looked around, and even through their stoic expression of their mask, I could sense their rage. They took a step back, putting as much distance as they could between themselves and Aphrodite. One of their hands dipped into a pocket. 
You won't hurt anyone else, Aphrodite growled. There's six of us and one of you. From behind that mask, I heard a low muffled chuckle. The goat man lifted their hand out of their pocket. They held a small canister, and before anyone could stop them, they hurled it to the ground. It rolled towards Aphrodite's feet and I saw her eyes widen. The canister exploded. There was a sudden flash of light and a deafening sound. For a moment I thought I was dead. My ears were ringing. The pain in my shoulder felt worse, but I could still feel. I felt myself being lifted up and carried away, and I heard a distant voice saying, Get her out. Leave them. Let's go. As my vision returned, I recognized Randall's living room. I felt dizzy and disoriented. My eyes were still ringing, and I was carried by two women to a van waiting out front of Randall's house. I saw Aphrodite cut ahead of the girls, who had me slung over their shoulders. She looked back at the house and swore under her breath. She looked over in the direction that the police car had been a few moments ago and swore again. Ah, damn pig bastards. Let's go, ladies. Now. Move, move, move. The side door of the van was opened, and I was sat down in a seat. Don't worry, said a woman. She had nice blue eyes. I'll get you patched up. I could see other girls moving into the van behind her and getting buckled in. Afro, I'm going to need first aid, the girl said. Yeah, I've got it. I recognized that voice as Aphrodite's. She closed the van door behind her, and it pulled out onto the street. I thought about my bike before deciding that there was no way I was going to ride it in my current condition anyways. This is going to hurt, the woman said. Whatever, just do it, I replied. She was right. It did hurt like a son of a bitch when she removed the knife. But at least the stitches after that weren't so bad. You hanging in there all right? Aphrodite asked. Well, considering I just got friggin' stabbed, yeah, I'm doing all right, I replied through gritted teeth. What the hell happened back there? Who the hell was that? Wish I knew, Aphrodite said. I cried out as the girl beside me did my stitches. Beth, go easy on her, she ordered. I can go easy or I can do it right, Beth replied. It's harder to do this while in a moving vehicle, you know. It's fine. I can handle it, I said. That bastard killed Randall. We need to go to the cops. I don't know if you noticed the cop sitting out front of his house who didn't do Jack, but I sure did, Aphrodite said. Funny how they took off after we arrived. If you ask me, the cops can't be trusted. They're the damn cops. That's literally their job. Most of them, maybe. Obviously, somebody has enough friends on the force to keep them out of any serious trouble, though, and we don't know who to trust. We're not going to the cops, Aphrodite said. Whatever the hell we stumbled into... We're in a world of crap now, my friend. We're off the reservation. As Beth finished stitching my wounds, I looked over at Aphrodite, and I saw the look of grave concern on her face. She was right. We were in some very deep shit. The sign out front read Anders Auto Repair. I was sure I'd seen it before. I knew this part of town, although I'd never actually stopped inside. The van pulled into the parking lot, and I saw one of the service bay doors open to let it inside. Aphrodite opened the door of the van before getting out, and I stepped out behind her. My shoulder still stung from my recent injury, but
but Beth had done a decent enough job patching it up, and I did everything I could to try and ignore the pain. What are we doing here? I asked, looking around. The service bays were all empty, save for the van. The place looked more or less abandoned. Laying low, Aphrodite responded. Emma's brother owns this place. We've been hiding out here for a few days now. It's not exactly the Ritz, but it's safe enough. Hiding? I almost asked. From what? But I knew better. That person in the goat mask? Have you met them before? Two nights ago, Aphrodite said. Right after the war on hunger. They were waiting for me in my house. I guess they thought I'd be there alone, but I was lucky. I had Emma and Rachel with me. Our friend doesn't do so good against numbers. She gestured to two women nearby. The first one, Emma, was a somewhat grouchy-looking brunette. She'd been the one driving the van earlier. Rachel was a shorter, plumper girl with short, curly brown hair. Emma gave us a quick nod before Aphrodite continued. Speaking of which, Rachel, can you and Nadine keep an eye on the outside? Give us a shout if anyone shows up. Yes, ma'am, Rachel said quietly. She looked over at who I assume was Nadine before they both took off outside. They closed the doors of the service bay behind them. Aphrodite watched them go before her attention turned back to me. It's Andrea, right? She asked. The beacon. I don't think we've ever been formally introduced. We haven't, I replied. She offered me a hand to shake and I shook it. Aphrodite Diamandis. My mother had a thing for Greek mythology, so I played into it. She gestured to Beth, who'd gotten out of the van behind me. You know Beth. She's a nurse. Beth raised a hand to wave before she took off deeper into the garage. Then there's Ariel, Emma. She gestured to the other two. Ariel was a somewhat scrawny-looking blonde. Nadine and Rachel are the ones keeping watch outside. I gave those who were present a quick wave before Aphrodite gestured towards an office in the back corner of the garage. I followed her over. The office clearly wasn't hers, but she'd appropriated it. I spotted a few bottles of alcohol along with some clean glasses. Beside her makeshift bar, there were a few walkie-talkies on chargers. Up close, Aphrodite seemed a lot different than I had imagined her. I'd only ever seen her from a distance, and I'd never noticed just how muscular she was. She was clearly something of a gym rat. I could also see a faint scar running down across her cheek just below her eye. I assume you weren't at Randall's for a social call, Aphrodite said as she stepped into the office. How much did he tell you? As much as he knew, I think, I replied. Casey found a woman. You three took her to a shelter, and he thought that was why she'd been taken. Aphrodite picked up a bottle of vodka off the desk and opened it. She poured herself a glass before looking at me, silently offering me one. I nodded and let her pour it. Yeah, that just about covers it. She downed her glass in one go. She paused, staring down at it for a moment before shaking her head. Damn, I should have tried to get Randall yesterday. I thought he'd be safe. A suburban street with a wife and kids. I didn't think they'd go after him there. You had no way of knowing, I said softly. The memory of Randall's body flashed through my mind's eye for a moment. I felt a chill go through my bones. I'd never seen a corpse before. Now with a moment to breathe, I felt the weight of his death, although I didn't know how to express it. Randall had hardly been my best friend, 
but he had been my friend, and his loss left this hole in my heart that I didn't know how to handle. I found a seat and slumped down before tossing back the vodka. I knew they'd come, Aphrodite said. I just didn't know when. There were cops outside his damn house. Cops! She turned to look at me, as if looking for confirmation. Randall said he wasn't sure if we could trust them, I replied. Obviously we can't, Aphrodite scoffed. No kidding. She sank down into the office chair behind the desk, then refilled her glass. She topped me off as well before reaching for one of the walkie-talkies. Rachel, Nadine, how's it looking out there? Nothing out of the ordinary, came a voice on the other end. I'll check in in ten. Thanks. Stay safe. Aphrodite set the walkie-talkie down on her desk before rubbing her temples. She chuckled humorlessly. God, I must look like a complete lunatic to you, don't I? She asked, hiding in a garage with a damn perimeter guard. Well, I'm not in the mood to judge you too harshly, given the night I've had, I replied. I took a sip of the vodka before I spoke again. Randall thought you knew more about what was going on. Tell me he was right. I know more. I can't say it's much, Aphrodite said. I did some digging, though, and I've got a theory. How much did Randall tell you about the girl? Not much. He said she'd been through some crap, maybe sex trafficking or something. At least that's the vibe I got from what he told me. Not far off the mark, Aphrodite sighed. Again, she rubbed at her temples. After a moment, her blue eyes met mine. You know, I've spent most of my life working with abuse victims. See this? She gestured to the scar on her cheek. That's from my dad. He was a hell of a mean drunk, and I just couldn't wait to get away from him. So, first chance I got, I joined the army. Things were all right. Then one day, I get a call. My mom's in the hospital. Turns out that after I left, she became Dad's new punching bag. Now I see red. I wanted to beat the crap out of the man. Lord knows how I kept enough restraint to stop myself, but... Instead, I focused on helping my mom get the hell away from him. My dad's in prison now, where he belongs. And I've spent as much of my life as I could trying to help people in crappy situations. I've seen just about everything. Child abuse, domestic abuse, human trafficking, but I've never seen anything like this. That girl. She was barely human anymore. She sat on the floor. She didn't speak. She wouldn't even walk. She tried to crawl on the ground like... like... like a dog. I don't know what the hell a person has to go through to be reduced to that. And I don't want to know. That girl was broken. She was scared, and I'll be honest with you, with the stuff going on right now, I'm scared too, because whoever is after us right now did that to someone. Oh my goodness, I said under my breath. Aphrodite nodded. She turned on the computer on the desk and brought something up while she continued to speak. Yeah, the somewhat good news is, at least I knew what to look for in other victims. If there were any, she said. I found this. She turned the screen towards me. It was an old news report on the arrest of a drug runner in Nevada. I asked a few friends and someone directed me to this. The article didn't say much on the girl, but take a look. I read some text that Aphrodite had highlighted. 
An unidentified woman, later determined to be Ashley Harrison, 28 years old, was found to be living in the house. Harrison had been listed as a missing person in Milton, Ontario since 2011. I got in touch with Harrison's family. Do you know what they told me? Aphrodite asked. She didn't wait for an answer. They told me that she was basically catatonic when she came home. Didn't speak. Acted abnormally. Do you want to know how they described her? Dog-like? I said under my breath. Aphrodite nodded. That drug runner was keeping her as a damn sex slave. Currently, she's a long-term inpatient at a care facility in Kitchener. According to her family, she doesn't have the physical or mental ability to care for herself or function on her own. She's not the only one of her kind either. I found six different cases of girls who'd gone missing in or around the GTA, suddenly turning up years later. They'd be found in the care of a drug lord or a dictator or something, always in a state where they could no longer function. Four of those girls are dead now. One I couldn't find, but all of them had a history of homelessness. So here's my theory. Whoever is doing this, they're here. They're in the city. That familiar sick feeling in my stomach had returned. I stared down at the empty glass of vodka, then looked back up at Aphrodite. Behind her stern blue eyes, I could see a quiet anxiety. Damn it. It was all I could think to say. Everything she'd said. It sounded almost too messed up to be true. Almost. Yeah, Aphrodite stood up, getting more vodka. I imagine it might also explain the complete ineffectiveness of the police. I'm sure there's good money in trained sex slaves, enough to pay off some pretty handsome bribes at least. That makes it difficult to know who to trust. Do you trust me? I asked. If I didn't trust you, we wouldn't be having this conversation, Aphrodite replied. She topped herself off with more vodka. I've got a few sources I'm poking around with. Maybe I'll find something that will give me an idea of who might be behind this. I'd also settle on finding a decent cop who isn't on the bastard's payroll, although I don't even know where to begin looking. As soon as I figured out something was going on, I called all my girls in and took us all to ground. I was the only one who had anything to do with helping that girl, but I don't know if they'll stop at me. Those girls. They aren't cops. They aren't soldiers. They're just good people trying to help. I didn't want anything to happen to them. I don't want anything to happen to the rest of your group either. She looked over at me again. Are you the only one that Randall told? As far as I know, if there's even a slight chance that Brian and David are in danger, though we need to tell them immediately. I stood up, reaching into my pocket for my cell phone, but Aphrodite reached out to put a hand on my shoulder. I agree. We need to tell them. But it's better that we do it in person. We know the police can't be trusted, and we don't know what kind of resources this person has. That means that our phones could be bugged. I paused, knowing that she was right. Aphrodite picked up the walkie-talkie. If they're in danger, I wouldn't forgive myself if we waited until tomorrow. We can pick them up now and make sure they're safe and with us. She pressed the button on the walkie-talkie. Rachel, Nadine, are you there? She paused, waiting for a response. None came. I saw Aphrodite's brow furrow. Rachel, Nadine, are you there? 
The walkie-talkie was silent, and I could see the color slowly draining from Aphrodite's face. No. Static crackled over the walkie-talkie, and through it, I heard a voice. The static muffled it, as did something else, yet the sound of it chilled me to the bone. Bah. The imitation of a goat bleeding was almost perfect. I could hear the speaker almost laughing as they made the noise. Aphrodite dropped the walkie-talkie and tore past me, heading out into the garage. Damn it! Damn it! They're here! Emma! Ariel! Beth! I saw Emma in the service bay holding a gas can up to refuel the van. Her head darted over to look at us. Across the service bay, I saw Beth and Ariel talking to each other. Both of them came running as soon as they saw Aphrodite and me. What's wrong? Where's Rachel? Emma demanded. I don't know, but we've got company. Lock the doors. Grab something to use as a weapon. If that guy comes inside, I want them dead. Aphrodite snapped. As soon as the words left her mouth, the lights went dead and shrouded us in darkness. A few smaller lights appeared from cell phone flashlights, and I reached into my pocket to grab my own. Are you kidding me? Emma asked. They're just trying to spook us. Get something to defend yourselves. Move. Now. Aphrodite said. They're going to get inside. As soon as she'd said this, I heard the sound of glass shattering. I was already on my way to a nearby workbench when I heard it. I tore a drawer open and searched for anything that might be sharp enough to stab with, or heavy enough to swing. All I found was a socket wrench. Assuming the goat man still had their sword, I didn't like my odds. Ah, screw this! Let's just go, I heard someone say. I didn't recognize the voice, so I assumed it was Ariel. No! Nadine and Rachel might still be out there! We don't leave people behind, Emma snarled. There's five of us, one of them. We can handle it. Lights danced around the darkened service bay as we checked the doors. Beside me, I could hear Aphrodite swearing under her breath. Where are you, you son of a bitch? My blood rushed in my ears. The only sound I heard was the anxious whispering between Aphrodite's remaining friends. The woman herself stood beside me constantly moving her light, trying to catch a glimpse of whatever our assailant was. Time moved slowly. Every moment felt like an hour as we waited for the goat man to come. There was a sudden, loud pop and a flash from one corner of the room. I heard a scream of pain followed by someone yelling, Beth! Get down! Aphrodite yelled, and as she did, a second gunshot sounded. The workbench I'd taken my wrench from didn't offer much cover, but I still ducked behind it, hoping I'd stay out of range. I fumbled with my phone to shut off the flashlight. Every other light in the dark room was snuffed out as well, save for one. In the light of Beth's dropped phone, I could see the shape of her body on the ground, and I could see her chest frantically rising and falling. I saw movement in the darkness from the corner of my eye and pressed myself against the wall. My heart raced as I heard slow footsteps crossing the silent service bay. The goat man approached Beth slowly, watching as she tried to move. I heard a wet gurgle escape her. I saw her raising a hand, silently begging for her life. But the goat man did not care. 
they raised the gun to her head and fired again. Her body jerked suddenly, then went still. From behind that damn goat mask, I could hear a muffled chuckle. The goat man stood over Beth's body. I could see them looking around, watching and listening for any sign of us. They hesitated for a moment. A tense silence hung over us. I could hear the blood rushing in my ears. We were helpless. The goat man had us cornered. There was nowhere to run, and the only weapon I had was a damn socket wrench. There was a mechanical groan as the bay door opened. New light flooded into the garage, and I heard the door to the van slamming. The goat man spun around looking for the source of the sound. Their back was to me and I saw my opening. It was either try and take them down while I had the chance, or die huddled in a corner. I lunged for them, swinging the socket wrench for the back of their head. And as I did, I watched as the goat man's hand came up and caught the wrench before it could hit them. Their head turned and I could see a pair of eyes gleaming behind the mask. I could see the sadistic glee in them as they raised the gun to kill me. However, before they could pull the trigger, they glanced to the side. I could see Aphrodite charging at them, and they caught the goat man by the wrist before they could fire. She jerked their hand upwards. The gun went off. The van's engine roared to life, and I caught a glimpse of Emma behind the wheel. I know that Aphrodite saw it too. She pulled the goat man towards her, lining them up with the front of the van as Emma hit the gas, ramming the goat man. Their grip on me slipped as they were tossed across the service bay. The gun clattered out of their hand. Aphrodite glared at them before her eyes settled on the gun. She made a dash for it. I guess she thought the goat man would be down for longer. They weren't. As soon as they'd hit the ground, they were on their feet again, and they were much faster than Aphrodite. As she reached for the gun, the goat man cut in front of them. They moved with a surprising grace, landing a square kick to her stomach and snatching up the gun with one graceful movement. The gun was trained on Aphrodite as they prepared to take a shot. I sprinted towards the goat man, grabbing them by the arm and pushing it aside as the gun went off, forcing them to miss. They threw me off of them. Behind me, I heard the tires of the van squealing as Emma tried to maneuver it so she could ram the goat man again. Aphrodite scrambled out of the way, and the goat man glared into the headlights as Emma hit the gas again. For a moment, I was sure she'd crush them against the wall. My breath caught in my throat as the van shot towards our assailant. Instead, I watched as they charged towards the van in turn. Like a cat, they leapt up onto the hood. They fired a shot through the windshield as they ran over it and up onto the roof. The van crashed into the wall, and through the side window, I saw Emma slump over. The goat man stood atop the van like a conquered foe, the gun resting at their side as they surveyed Aphrodite and myself. I could see the horror on her face as she realized what I already knew. We were in over our heads. From inside the van, I could hear Ariel screaming in terror. Aphrodite glanced towards the van, then back at the goat man who silently dared her to move. Run, Aphrodite said, her voice cracking with fear. She'd made up her mind. No, I replied. All I had was the wrench in my hand, but I wasn't going to leave her to die. The goat man raised the gun, 
aiming for Aphrodite first. As they did, I hurled the socket wrench at their head. They caught it because of course they friggin' did. But it was enough of a distraction for Aphrodite to get into the back of the van. The goatman glanced down at where she'd been, then back towards me. They tried to aim at me, but I was already forcing myself under the van and out of their reach. I saw him as body hit the ground beside the driver's seat. Her eyes were still wide open and rolled back into her skull. A small, red hole sat between them. The sight of her made me jump, and I felt a stab of sorrow. Even if I'd only just met Emma, she didn't deserve to die that way. There was no time to mourn her, though. Not in that moment. The van roared to life before it jerked backwards. I heard a grunt of pain as the goat man lost their footing and tumbled off of it. I saw them crash gracelessly to the ground a few feet away. As soon as the van was no longer on top of me, I scrambled to my feet. It veered away, and I saw one of the doors open. Ariel held it for me, eyes wide and full of tears as she beckoned me inside. Come on! I didn't waste my time. I sprinted towards the doors and leapt in. The van was speeding out of the service bay before we could even close the door. I only took one glance back, enough to see the goat man on their feet again and firing at the van. I felt a vehicle swerve violently, and for a moment, I thought they'd blown out one of our tires. If they had, Aphrodite didn't seem to give a damn. We swerved out onto the highway and she hit the gas, speeding away from the garage. I could hear her hyperventilating as she drove. Her grip on the steering wheel was white-knuckled and anxious. Damn it, damn it, damn it. Her voice was shaking as she spoke. The windshield was cracked from where the bullet had gone through, and she had to crane her neck to look around it, but I didn't think she cared. I looked back out through the rear windows. There was nothing but empty road behind us. We'd escaped, for the moment. Emma, I heard Ariel say. She was looking out through the rear windows too. Her voice was small and weak. I couldn't imagine she'd ever seen someone die before, much less a friend. Neither had I. I put a hand on her shoulder, and she quickly buried her head into my arms. With the immediate danger gone, all she could do was cry, and I didn't blame her for that. Not one bit. We need a new place to lay low, Aphrodite said. Her voice was hoarse, and I could still hear it trembling. We'd been driving for almost half an hour by then, although I can't say if we had any direction or not. No kidding, I replied. I left Ariel in the back seat and was climbing up to claim the passenger seat. The wound in my arm stung now that the adrenaline was wearing off. Any ideas? No, Aphrodite said. She sniffled and wiped her nose. No, uh, I don't know where the hell we're going right now. <laughs> Damn it. Maybe we'll just leave the freaking country. Start again somewhere else. I looked at her. In the streetlights, I could see the tears streaming down her cheeks. Aphrodite. I reached out to put a hand on her shoulder. She flinched and glared at me. No. No. Y you saw what I just saw, didn't you? D d damn it. Damn it. Damn it. She was starting to hyperventilate. She wasn't even looking at the road. Breathe, I said. Just breathe. 
Don't tell me to breathe. My friends are dead. They're all dead. I... I... I've got Emma's brains on the headrest behind me. Her voice had cracked. Thick tears rolled down her cheeks as the car slowed to a stop in the middle of the road, and Aphrodite broke down. All that panic, grief, and fear she'd kept bottled up suddenly broke free as she descended into terrified hysterics. Rachel, Beth, Nadine, Emma, uh, damn it, damn it. She pounded on the horn with her fists before slumping down onto it. And if we try to run, they're just going to find us again, I said. Aphrodite sniffed as she looked at me, teeth gritted in a mix of rage and sorrow that I understood all too well. You said it yourself. We're off the reservation. Whatever the hell we stumbled into, we're in a world of crap. I don't think there's any running from that. You said the girls this guy sold were found outside of Canada. That means he has influence. And there might not be a single rock on this planet that we can hide under where this guy can't find us. Is that how you want to live? Looking over your shoulder for the rest of your life? Aphrodite wiped her tears away. She was silent for a moment, processing what I'd said. It took her a few moments before she finally gave a slow nod. You're right, she murmured. She exhaled, still trembling with rage, but at least able to pretend that she was calmer. I... I need to check on my friends, I said. If they're in danger too, I need to get them to safety. There is no damn safety, Aphrodite replied. There's us in the van. That's it. It's better than nothing, I said. Please, let me find them, and I'll bring them to you. Maybe together. We'll figure something out. Aphrodite scoffed but didn't argue. Fine. Just do what you've got to do. I'll give you my phone number. Check in with me so I know you're still alive. I will, I promised. Aphrodite studied me carefully for a moment, as if she was looking for some sign that I was lying. When she knew that I wasn't, she sighed and took out her phone. Don't die on me, Andrea. Please. I promised her that I wouldn't. Aphrodite dropped me off just down the street from Brian and James's apartment. It was early morning and the sun hadn't risen yet. I was exhausted in every sense of the word. My muscles ached more than they had in a very long time, but I still made my way towards the door. Part of me was terrified of what I'd see when I made it to their apartment. I didn't have a key like I did for Casey's, so I needed to be buzzed in. As I stood in the doorway of their building, waiting for them to answer, my heart was racing. I didn't know what idea scared me more, silence or the voice of the goat man bleeding at me over the intercom. Instead, I was greeted by James's voice. He sounded like I'd just woke him up. Hello? James, I cried. It's Andrea, I... I trailed off. How would I even begin to explain what had happened over the past few hours? It's urgent, I finally said. Can it wait? It's two in the morning. No, I need to talk to you and Brian now. He paused. He must have heard the urgency in my voice. I'll buzz you in, he said. 
The door unlocked, and I threw it open and headed for the elevator. Andrea, what the hell is going on? Brian asked as he answered the door. I pushed past him to get inside and forced the door closed before locking it, then leaning against it for support. Damn it, Andrea, what the hell? I looked back at Brian. I could see James in the kitchen behind him. They stared expectantly at me, angry that I'd woken them up. Randall's dead, I said quietly. They both just stared at me, not fully comprehending what I was saying. Brian spoke first. What? How? What happened? Murdered. I don't know what happened to his wife or his kids. The same person just killed most of Aphrodite's handmaidens, too. Get your things. We're not staying. What? Like hell we aren't? What the hell is going on? Did you call the police? The police won't help. They were right outside the door when Randall died, and they didn't do jack to help. They... I swore before trying to calm myself and forced myself to start at the beginning. As I told Brian what I knew, he listened with slack-jawed horror. James stood in the kitchen, silent. I saw his hand creeping towards his mouth, covering his own expression. Oh my god, Brian murmured as I finished. Andrea, what did you get yourself into? I didn't have a hell of a lot of choice, I replied. Aphrodite's got the van. She's finding a place to hide out. I'll call her in a minute to check in, make sure everything's fine, but we shouldn't stay here. We're not safe. No kidding, James murmured. He paused, staring at me before adding, Andrea, you're bleeding. I looked down at my shoulder. I could see my own blood trickling out through the hole in my jacket. I swore under my breath and removed it. What the hell happened to your arm? Brian asked. The guy in the goat mask nicked me with a knife. I said, I'm fine. I'd bled through my bandages, although it didn't look like it had been recent. Most of the blood was already dried. Do you guys have fresh wrappings? I need to dress this. D you call that getting nicked? Brian asked. He examined my shoulder, then looked at me. His brow furrowed. I'm fine. One of Aphrodite's girls dressed it. Beth. I trailed off. A vivid memory of the way Beth's body jolted suddenly as the goat man had murdered her flashed through my mind. Beth? Brian asked. Beth Michaels? I didn't catch your last name, I murmured. Did she make it out with Aphrodite? I looked him in the eye. His expression darkened. Oh, God. Brian pulled back and James came forward to guide me to the couch. I'll get you some fresh bandages. Just stay put, he said. I watched as Brian leaned against the wall and buried his head in his hands. No, 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 no. You knew her? I asked softly. Brian managed a half nod. He didn't speak. I don't know if he could have managed it right then and there. Sinking into his couch, my exhaustion almost completely overtook me. James returned with bandages while Brian turned to fix himself a drink from the kitchen. I saw James giving him a disapproving glance, but I was too tired to care. The couch was soft and comfortable, and that day had taken everything I had. I don't remember falling asleep. I only remember closing my eyes to rest them for just a moment. Then nothing. 
Andrea. I started awake and was greeted by the sight of Brian standing over me. I could see sunlight filtering in through the window behind him. My entire body ached in the worst way. Sitting up took effort. I could feel a blanket over me. Ah, how long was I out? I fumbled through my pocket for my phone, only to see that Brian was holding it up. Aphrodite called. Don't worry, I answered it. Everything's fine, Brian said. She said she found a place to lay low and told me to let you rest. James and I have been awake and keeping an eye out. Chris is in his room. He's not going to school today. Behind Brian, I saw James in the kitchen making coffee. I glanced over at my shoulder and saw my wound had new bandages on it. You tore your stitches. James redid them for you. I doubt it's half as good as what Beth did, but it should hold. Here, I got you some coffee and some ibuprofen. He offered me the pills first. I chased them down with the coffee. What time is it? I asked. About seven. You were only out for a few hours. It's better than not sleeping at all, I guess. Brian sank down onto the couch beside me. James and I packed some things. We'll eat. Then we'll go out and look for Aphrodite. I nodded. It sounded like a good enough plan to me. Chris joined us for breakfast. He was a good kid of about 15. I'd only ever really spoken to him a few times, but the way Brian and James gushed about him, I figured I knew enough to know they'd done a good job of raising him. Breakfast was a quiet affair. I was too sore and so much of what had happened the night before was still hitting me. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw a corpse. Randall sitting in his chair, Beth's body jerking as the goat man shot her, or Emma's body hitting the ground as Aphrodite pushed it out of the van. I rubbed at my temples, trying to make the images go away. I didn't have much of an appetite. I kept remembering the look in their eyes, distant and far away. Their bodies were there, but they were gone. Everything they were, everything they could have been, taken away from them in an instant. You all right? Brian asked. It was a rhetorical question. Yeah, I lied. I set my fork down. I felt sick to my stomach. I checked my phone. I had had a quick call with Aphrodite after I woke up. She told me she'd headed up towards Kitchener, following the only real lead that we had, Ashley Harrison. According to Aphrodite, she'd been the only person we could track down who'd had any contact with the person behind this. I didn't know what we expected to get out of her, but we had nothing else to go off of. When I heard the knock on the door, I felt a sudden jolt of panic. All of our heads spun towards the door, eyes wide and suspicious. For a moment, everything was silent. Then, James stood up. I'd seen the gun in his hand before he kept it close to his side as he approached the door slowly. Brian got up to follow him as James leaned in to look through the peephole. When he looked back at us, his brow was furrowed in confusion. Who is it? Brian asked. I don't think any of us expected his answer. I don't know. Some woman. I stood up, making my way over to the door. I nudged James out of the way to look through the peephole. She wasn't anyone I recognized. She was of Asian descent with jet black hair and a bob cut and messy bangs. She seemed incredibly pale, and I spotted a small gift basket in her hands. Go, I said, gesturing for James to leave. 
Stay close to Chris. Be ready to run. James frowned and hesitated for a moment before he handed me the gun. I hid it behind my back before I unlocked the door and pulled it open. I put on a fake smile to greet the woman on the other end. She spoke first before I could say a word. Good morning. My name is Haruka Anno. I'm here on behalf of the Palmer Foundation, the woman said. Her voice was quiet with an even tone. She wore a warm smile that looked just as fake as mine was. The Palmer Foundation? I asked. I stared at the gift basket in her hand. It was filled with chocolates. Obviously nothing one can pick up at a store on the way over, although it did look quite fancy. Yes, our chairman, Mr. Palmer, wanted to thank you for your contributions to our annual War on Hunger this past weekend, and to offer his condolences and support after the disappearance of your associate, Haruka said. Her eyes darted down towards my bandaged shoulder. I'm sorry, is this a bad time? Now is fine, I replied. I glanced back towards James and stepped out of his way, letting him take the gift basket from Haruka. Thank you, he said quietly, before he disappeared back into the apartment. Mr. Palmer has asked me to inform you that if there is anything he can do to assist in this difficult time, you are more than welcome to reach out to him, Haruka said. Her eyes burned into mine. Something about her made my skin crawl. We're all fine for now. Is that all? I asked. It is. Please have a wonderful day. You too. I closed the door in her face and locked it again afterwards. A chocolate basket from the Palmer Foundation? Brian asked. I didn't think Joffrey Palmer even knew we existed. He might not, I warned. Leave the chocolate. Get your things. It's time to go. I looked through the peephole again. Haruka was gone although I could almost hear her voice in the hall, as if she was talking to someone. It faded before I could hear what she was saying. A few moments passed. There was no further sound. I'll get the car keys, Brian said. Did Aphrodite tell you where she was located? Yeah, she and Ariel have a room at a small motel just outside of Kitchener, I replied. I checked my phone again. Still nothing, but no news was good news. I figured I could tell her about Haruka later. The drive to Kitchener was fairly uneventful. Brian drove, James sat in the passenger seat, and I sat in the back with Chris. I tried to get some sleep, although I didn't have much success. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw another corpse. Emma, Randall, Beth, Brian, Casey, James, and even myself. I could envision my own dead, vacant eyes the blank expression on my face. Andrea. Brian's voice tore me away from my own thoughts, and I looked up. Ahead of us, I could see a motel parking lot. I recognized it as the one Aphrodite told me she'd gone to lay low in. I suppose she had been there at one point. I doubt she was anymore. Out front of one of the rooms, I saw a blackened, smoldering ruin that had once been a van. I saw ambulances out front of the motel, and as Brian pulled over to get a better look, I saw a figure on a stretcher being wheeled towards the ambulance. I couldn't see their face. It was covered by a cloth. Maybe that was a mercy. Whoever it was, I didn't want to see them. My heart was pounding in my chest again as I stared out the window. 
in silence along with Brian and James. None of us spoke. None of us needed to. After a few moments, Brian pulled back onto the street and kept driving. It was the only thing that we could really do. Mayfair Lodge looked like any other retirement home I'd seen. There was an air of peace there. The almost empty parking lot was off the beaten path and obscured from the main road by trees. The building itself was a four-story chateau with a weathered exterior. It wasn't run down, but it clearly had seen better days. As Brian pulled his SUV into the parking lot, I stared quietly up at the building. So, do you have a... a plan at all? Brian asked as he killed the engine. Not exactly, but I don't have any better ideas, I replied. Ashley's the only person we know of who's seen the inside of this operation. If we can get anything out of her, maybe it can help. If, Brian murmured. The way you explained it, it kind of sounded like Aphrodite didn't like her chances. I winced at the mention of her name and remembered the burnt-out van. I remembered the covered body being brought out of the motel. Aphrodite was probably dead now. Well, we don't know unless we try. I replied as I opened the door. Let's see what's inside. I honestly was a bit relieved that James and Chris were no longer with us. Brian and James had a friend in the area, and Brian had been adamant that James and Chris stay with them. I'd been reluctant to allow it, but he hadn't given me much of a say in the matter. Clearly, we're in danger, and if we go looking for this Ashley Harrison girl, we'll just be putting them in more risk. It's a closed apartment building with plenty of other people around. It's safe, he'd said. I don't think he wanted to believe that there was no such thing as safe. I'd watched as he kissed James goodbye and given Chris a parting hug. Just be safe, James had told us before he'd disappeared into their friend's apartment building. You know I will be, Brian replied. Keep Chris close. I love you. The lobby of Mayfair Lodge seemed to fit the exterior. It was quiet and clean, but clearly old. I spotted a young woman behind the front desk, and she looked up at me and Brian as we approached her. Good afternoon, and welcome to Mayfair Lodge. How can I help you? We're looking for Ashley Harrison, I replied. A strange look crossed the receptionist's face, recognition along with surprise. Harrison, are you family? Not exactly, I replied. Just an old friend. I wanted to check in on her. It's, it's been difficult since she was found. The receptionist nodded. I understand. Ashley's condition isn't the best. She should be in her room right now. Can I get a name for the guest book? I almost gave her my real name, but found myself hesitating instead. If someone tried to follow us, I wanted to at least try and throw them off the scent. It's Karen. Karen Rogers, I said. I watched as the receptionist wrote it down before giving me a warm smile. Excellent, thank you. Would you like me to show you to her room? Yes, please, I said. I glanced over at Brian and we followed the receptionist deeper into the building. I could hear televisions in distant rooms and the muffled voices of elderly people as we followed behind the receptionist. Brian stayed close behind me, looking around warily. The room the receptionist led us to was near the back of the building, not quite in some forgotten corner, but it almost felt like it. 
at the end of the hall, out of the way of everything else. She knocked twice on the door, and when there was no response, she opened it. Ashley, Karen Rogers is here to see you. There was no response, and for a moment I was afraid that no one was in the room, or worse, that Ashley was already dead. I looked past the receptionist, and I could see an empty bed that looked like it hadn't been touched. It was a few moments before I saw a few blankets lying on the ground, nearby, with a woman curled into the fetal position on top. Her head raised to look at us. Her eyes seemed sunken into her skull and hollow. She seemed bony, and her clothes seemed loose around her. Just the sight of her made me pause. I'll be outside, Brian said softly, as the receptionist turned to leave. In a moment, I was alone with this shell of a woman, and I found myself unable to speak. To say she stood up would be inaccurate. She rose up, onto all fours like a child, and crawled towards me, her neck craned upwards to look at me. She didn't speak. All she did was stare. Ashley? I asked softly. No response. She just leaned forwards and sniffed at my hand, like a curious animal. Then she sank back onto her knees, looking expectantly up at me. I looked down at her hands, and my stomach churned. Both of her hands seemed misshapen and clenched into loose fists. She could barely move her fingers. Ashley, I asked again. I crouched down in front of her. She didn't move. She only stared at me. Can you speak? I asked. Yes, ma'am. Her voice was weak yet enthusiastic. Uncomfortably so. She smiled at me, although the smile didn't reach her eyes. That look in her eyes reminded me of the look I saw in Emma's eyes after she'd been killed. Far away and absent. Dead. What do you want me to do, ma'am? Are we going to play? Nobody plays with me anymore. I want to play. What? What? Play, Ashley repeated. Her voice trembled softly. Play. Play! 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 I watched as tears welled up in her eyes, but her smile never faded. Her voice shook as she said that word over and over again. P-p-p-play? play Her malformed hands reached up, trying to remove her shirt. I reached out, grabbing her by the wrists, to stop her once I realized that she meant to undress herself and offer herself to me. No. Ashley paused. Her eyes met mine. She went silent. No, I'm not here for that, I said. I paused for a moment before I asked, Do you remember your family? She didn't react at first. I wasn't sure if what I saw was hesitation or a genuine struggle to remember. Mama, Ashley murmured. Dad. Brother. A small ghost of a smile crossed her lips. I remember. Do you remember what life was like before this? With them? I asked. More silence, although I could see Ashley's brow furrowing. Before, she murmured. Mama, eviction. Cold. Not cold anymore. Not cold. W warm. She looked into my eyes again. Master was there, she said. Master, I asked. Who is your master? In the desert, 
the bright lights, so much noise. Master helped people, makes you feel good. Master isn't here. I, I don't know. Where's the desert? Desert? Aphrodite had said she'd been found in Nevada. Maybe that was what she was talking about. I couldn't be sure. She seemed to have trouble stringing her thoughts together. How did you meet your master? I asked. Master? She asked, and then trailed off. In the pretty rooms, master came. Sir said, he was master. Sir, in the pretty rooms. Sir, let me out. Sir, I asked. What do you remember about sir? Her expression darkened. Her fake smile faded, and I could see the color draining from her. She slumped forwards, resting her head on my shoulder. No, she whispered. Don't talk about sir. Don't, sir. Hurts. I'm a good girl. Good girl. Good girl. Yes. I could feel her trembling against me. Her breathing had changed. I pulled away from her. Ashley, I need to know who Sir is, I asked. Please, what do you remember about Sir? Did he have a name? Sir, she repeated, then shook her head. No, no, let's just play. Let's play, okay? I, I don't want to talk. I want to play. Ashley, please, I need you to focus. No, no, I'll play. I'll be a good girl. No, sir. No, sir. Play with me. I felt her hands on my cheeks. I could see the tears streaming down her face as she leaned in to kiss me. Her lips trembled against mine, and when I pulled away from her, she stayed on her knees. She reached up, beckoning me to come back to her. I'll be a good girl. Let me be a good girl. I just stared at her, unsure of what I possibly could say. There was nothing I could get out of Ashley. Just the mere mention of whoever this sir was had left her terrified, and whatever was left of her was too far gone to give me much else. I'm sorry, I whispered. Ashley just continued to look up at me, the tears still falling from her eyes. Slowly I turned away and stepped out of the room. I still had the bitter taste of her lips in my mouth. Brian stood in the hall, just a short distance away from the door. He looked up at me as I stepped out. Any luck? he asked. No, I replied. I looked back towards the door. She's too far gone. Brian jammed his hands into his pockets. So, what now? he asked. I don't know, I replied. We could follow up on what Aphrodite was doing. Try looking into other cases, see if we could find anyone like her. We could, or you could look at this. Brian gestured for me to follow him. He led me down the hall towards a small common room. Natural afternoon sunlight streamed in, and I spotted a couple of old men at a table nearby playing checkers, as well as an old woman in her wheelchair watching TV. None of that was what interested Brian, though. Instead, he gestured towards a small set of plaques that hung on the far wall. Donations, Brian said. Take a look at the high-tier ones. He pointed towards it. There were several plaques side by side, but I was only interested in the last two. One listed those who had donated $10,000 to Mayfair Lodge. 
there were several names I didn't recognize. Most of them certainly belonged to charities. On the plaque beside it, though, there was only one name listed. The donation amount was $1 million. Not a small amount of money to spend on an old retirement home. And in bronze beneath that kingly sum was the name. Joffrey Palmer. Palmer, I murmured, before looking back towards Brian. This is a little out of the way for the Palmer Foundation, isn't it? I asked. See, that's what I thought, Brian replied. I asked a nurse about it. From what I gathered, the Palmer Foundation runs this place, so I took a look on their website. They've got a list of all the services they fund. Shelters, soup kitchens, clothing drives, and a very generous mention of the war on hunger. No mention of this place. Interesting. I glanced back towards Ashley's room. If you're in the business of kidnapping homeless women, what's the best way to do it without being noticed? Open a shelter, Brian replied. Let them come to you. Exactly. I turned to leave and Brian followed. So what exactly is our play here? I don't know. But if Joffrey Palmer is the one behind this, then we need hard evidence and someone to trust, I replied. First, what we need to find is someplace safe. Somewhere the goat man can't get to us. Right. I'll let you know if I have any ideas. I think we should stay away from James and Chris. I don't want them getting dragged into this any more than they already have been. Neither do I. We'll find something, I said as we stepped out into the parking lot. I stopped to dead in my tracks as I did. My heart skipped a beat. Looking at Brian's SUV, I saw two shapes sitting on the hood. From a distance, I couldn't make out their faces, but I could see enough. Between them stood a figure clad in all black, save for the white goat mask they wore. A bloodied sword sat comfortably in their hand as they stared us down. I felt Brian tensing up beside me. I could hear the sudden inhale as he saw what sat on the hood of his car. Cruelly presented by the goat man as a reminder of our helplessness. On the hood of his car were the heads of Brian's husband and son. The goat man stood silently in front of the car, between the severed heads of James and Chris Richardson. They stared us down, and though they were silent, I could almost hear their cruel laughter. Beside me, a strangled scream escaped Brian. He shuffled forwards a few steps, eyes wide and tears streaming down his cheeks. I saw his teeth grit in a rage as the goat man started towards us. They held the sword tightly ready to finish what they'd started. Brian, I warned. Don't! There was no stopping him, though. You son of a bitch! He hissed through clenched teeth. Blinded by his rage, he charged for the goat man. Brian! I knew what was about to happen. I knew he was going to die, and I refused to let him. The goat man stood, waiting for him to come. As Brian sprinted towards them, I went after him and caught him by the shoulder, just a few feet away, and jerked him back. It was enough of a distance for the goat man to lunge for him. Their sword sliced through the air, beside where Brian had been, and behind their mask, I could see their eyes fixated on me. Brian pulled away, splitting off from me to try and catch the goat man from behind. 
They took a step back, trying to keep their eyes on both of us before deciding that Brian was the bigger threat. They made a move towards him. Their sword moved to slash at him, yet as it did, I caught the Goatman from behind, my arms wrapped around their body, restraining them and keeping them away from Brian. The back of their head smashed into my face. I felt an elbow dig into my ribs before the Goatman tore out of my embrace. Through my blurred vision, I could see Brian coming in from the side. His first punch skewed their mask. I saw the Goatman stagger back a step, and before they could regain their footing, Brian had delivered a second punch to their stomach. I seized them from behind again, not in a bear hug this time. I kicked one of their legs out from under them as Brian threw his weight down onto the Goatman, sending them both to the ground. The sword slipped from their hands and I saw their hand reach out of it. My boot came down on the blade as they tried to lift it. Brian seized the Goatman by the throat and drove his fist into their face, over and over again, screaming in grief and rage as he did. The mask sagged from the abuse. The goat man went limp. Bastard, Brian growled. You damn bastard. He punched them one last time before reaching down and grabbing hold of their mask. It crumpled in his fist as he tore it away to reveal their face. It was a face I'd seen earlier that day. The face of the woman who'd stopped by Brian's apartment to deliver chocolates. Haruka Anno coughed and gasped for breath. Her nose was broken, her hair was disheveled, and her dark eyes held a burning fury in them. You! Brian rasped. His voice was shaking with rage as his hands gripped their throat, squeezing the life out of her. I didn't do a thing to stop him. You killed him! Brian growled. You killed everyone! A twisted smile crossed Haruka's lips as Brian strangled her. Not yet. Her voice came out in a strangled hiss. I felt her pull at the sword beneath my boot and heard the snap of metal. The next thing I knew, the broken hilt of her sword was jutting out of his neck and his blood was gushing out of his throat. Brian sucked in a surprise to gasp, his hand pressed against the new wound in his throat. She pushed him off of her, and Brian collapsed onto the pavement, trying to apply pressure to his new wound, as he slipped away. In an instant, Haruka was on her feet, eyes settled on me. She stood between me and Brian, daring me to try and save him. As the pool of blood gushing from his throat grew, though, I knew I couldn't. One to go, Haruka said in a playful voice. Her lips curled into a knowing grin. I stared down at Brian, then back up at her. I felt like a deer in the headlights, unsure of what to do or how to fight back. I was alone against the person who'd killed every single one of my friends. I took a step back, and as I did, I heard police sirens. Both Haruka and I looked over towards the entrance of the parking lot as three police cars pulled in and sped towards us stopping just a few feet away. In an instant, several officers had their guns trained on us. Haruka's eyes scanned the surrounding cops before she cracked a coy grin. Police, get down, put your hands behind your head, an officer said. Haruka just chuckled, but her hands slowly went behind her head and she sank down to her knees. 
You two, get down, an officer said, and it took me a few moments to realize that he was talking to me. I did as I was told, putting my hands behind my head and getting on my knees. I looked over at Brian, who had gone still. My heart was racing in my chest. Who had called the police? How had they gotten there so fast? Haruka just smiled at me as both of us were handcuffed. The police didn't read either of us any rights, nor did they so much as look at Brian's body or the severed heads on the car. They just led Haruka and I to separate cars and took us away. The officers didn't speak as they drove me away from Mayfair Lodge. I didn't recognize the roads that we took, but it didn't take me long to figure out that we weren't headed to a police station. We weren't headed for anywhere I'd ever been before. The trees on either side of the road were thick, and though the road was paved, it was narrow. The car turned onto an unmarked road with no name, and continued up it. Looking out the window, I saw that the road had grown wider, and I thought I could glimpse something through the trees. It was a mansion, one of the biggest that I'd ever seen. It was a three-story tall French-style mansion that looked like a work of art. I could see bars on the windows and a ten-foot-tall black iron fence around the perimeter. The road curved as it led up the long driveway. As we exited the trees, I saw an immaculately trimmed lawn that seemed to stretch for acres. On one side of the house, I spotted a full-on landing pad complete with a black helicopter. The police car stopped in front of a large iron gate. Slowly, the gate swung open before the cars proceeded through it and pulled up towards the front door of the mansion. I saw Haruka getting out of the car ahead of me, uncuffed and looking no worse for wear. She'd had a strip applied to her nose and most of the blood cleaned off of her. The officers killed the engine, and one of them escorted me out of the car. No one spoke as I was led to the front door. I'll take her from here, Haruka said as we stood outside the doorway. I will be in touch with your payment. Of course. Pleasure working with you again, ma'am, the officer said. He handed the keys to my handcuffs over to Haruka before she put her hand on my shoulder and guided me into the house. I spotted the butt of a gun sticking out of her pocket. The entrance hall was massive, with a marble floor and a grand staircase leading up to the second and third floors. Move, Haruka said. She nudged me past the staircase. Master is waiting for you in his study. Slowly, I made my way in that direction that Haruka had indicated. I could see a glowing firelight through a door ahead. Haruka escorted me through it. Geoffrey Palmer's study had a warm and cozy feel to it. I could see a large wooden desk, an antique fireplace, and several bookshelves. I spotted a man himself sitting calmly behind the desk, tapping away at a laptop. He only briefly looked up at me as I came in. He was clean-shaven with boyish features and brown hair and eyes. Some of his features seemed a little too small for his face, he wore a creamed-colored suit and sat back in his chair as Haruka brought me towards him. He closed his laptop and cracked a warm, friendly smile. Ah, just in time. Sit her down, will you, Haruka? Yes, master. Obediently, she pushed me into a chair across from him, then hurried over to Palmer's side. 
There she stood at attention, like a butler or a faithful hound. Andrea Andrews, Palmer said. You and your friends have been quite a thorn in my side. What a nasty little mess this has turned into. Caused by an even more disgusting person, I replied. He just chuckled. Ah, I can't imagine you must think highly of me. I suppose we've caused each other a fair bit of trouble over the past few days. Well, no matter. That's behind us now. If you're going to kill me, just get it over with, I said. But sooner or later, someone is going to catch on to what you're doing, and they will stop you. You even sound like a real superhero, Palmer said wryly. Don't think the irony is lost on me that your little group of all people is the latest adversary I've had to face. Real-life superheroes, I honestly always thought you were just a cute gimmick for the kids. Look at you now. We were trying to help people, I said. We were trying to make the community a better place for the people who needed it. We were doing what your damn foundation was supposed to be doing. The Palmer Foundation does everything it says it does, Palmer said. Everything is perfectly legitimate. And if girls go missing from time to time, the Palmer Foundation officially had nothing to do with it. What I do on the side is my business and mine alone. You're still just using it as a front, I replied. An easy access way to find girls you can sell. It's an unfortunate truth that we live in a capitalist society, Palmer said. I'd go so far as to say that capitalism is indeed a global way of life, and there is one commodity that is valued above all others. Human bodies. Now, most people rent themselves out. That's what you do, isn't it, Andrea? Your nine-to-five grind for a modest salary is nothing more than renting yourself out for the benefit of a company. But there are always people who need a little bit more, aren't there? There's providers who offer that to various levels. Some of my closest friends deal in the trafficking of human capital for labor or sex. It's quite commonplace, and I really don't see the harm in it. However, that still isn't enough for some people. See, a human is valuable, but do you know what is even more valuable than just a body to use? He paused as if waiting for an answer. I had none to give. What makes you valuable to your company, Andrea? Is it just the fact that you sit in a chair and do your job, or is it your training? Palmer asked. This time he didn't wait for an answer. It's the training. That's the key to it. A trained human being is, well, invaluable. And that is exactly what some people want. They want full obedience and undying loyalty, not unlike what you'd find from a humbled dog. There is, of course, a reason why the dog is considered man's best friend. They are obedient, and they are loyal. People aren't pets, I said. You can't just break people down until they're subservient to others. I already have, Palmer said. You'd be surprised how ideal a pet human being can be. Take my dear Haruka here, he gestured to the woman at his side. I've trained her since she was eight years old, and look at her now. Loyal, efficient and perfect in every way. My gaze drifted over to Haruka, who stood as tall as if she was proud to be addressed like a pet. My gaze drifted over to Haruka, who stood tall as if she was proud to be addressed like a pet. You're insane, was all I could think to say to him. 
Palmer's brow furrowed just a little bit. I'm a capitalist, he replied. And you, my dear girl, are a recently disappeared graphic designer that no one is going to miss. He stood up and circled around his desk. But that's all right. You don't need to worry about your old life anymore. That's all in the past now. He crept behind me and I felt his hands on my shoulders. When I'm done with you, you won't have any worries. You won't have any cares. You'll just be happy for the chance to serve. You're a little old to sell, but that's all right. Maybe I'll keep you for myself, just because I can. He leaned down to whisper in my ear. I'm going to break you, Andrea. I'm going to hurt you more than you've ever been hurt before. I'm going to torture you, and when I've broken you down and remade you just the way I want you and made you mine, then I will choke the life out of you, because that's what I want to do. Because that, that is what excites me. I felt his lips pressing against the nape of my neck. I tried to pull away from him, but I could feel his arms wrapped around me. His hands ran down my body, over my breasts, and down onto my thighs. He exhaled before pulling back slowly. Haruka, take her upstairs. We'll start her training in the morning. Haruka pushed me into the room my hands still cuffed behind my back. I hit the ground hard and only barely had time to look up at her as she stood in the doorway, her head tilted slightly to the side, and that twisted smile on her lips. Enjoy your stay, she said in a cruel sing-song voice. The door slammed shut, leaving me alone. The room was more akin to a large closet. Like the rest of the house, it had a lavish feel to it, the tan carpet from the hallway had extended into the room, but the carpet was all that there was. No bed. No bathroom. Nothing at all. I'd seen pictures of solitary confinement in prison cells, and this reminded me of a slightly prettier version of those. There was a small window with no curtains and a series of bars on it. The glass was scratched and cracked. The door looked heavy and seemed to seal the room completely. I didn't think there was any way I could get it open without a key. There was a slot under the door where the meals could be pushed through. With my hands cuffed behind my back, it took me a few moments to make myself stand. I could hear a low hissing noise and looked around to see a vent in one of the corners of the room, slowly leaking gas. My heart skipped a beat. I'd never been drugged before, but I knew it was coming. I moved into the far corner of the room and held my breath, hoping that maybe that would be enough to keep me from passing out. All it did was delay the inevitable. Behind the door I could hear Haruka's mad chuckling. It was the last thing I heard before I slipped entirely into unconsciousness. I woke up in the middle of that empty room. I don't know how much time had passed, but it had definitely been a few hours. The sky outside my window was pitch black. I could feel the rough carpet against my skin and realized that I was as naked as the day I'd been born. The thought of Palmer watching as Haruka stripped me flashed through my mind and made me physically ill. I was pretty damn sure that nothing had happened besides simply being stripped, though. It was a small comfort. If Palmer was going to do anything to me, he probably wanted me to be awake to see it. 
A tray had been pushed through the slot in the door. On it were two bowls. The first was a plain white one filled with water. The second was pink and had my name lovingly printed on the side. Andrea. It was filled with a chunky brownish sludge that stank like rotten meat. It didn't take me long to figure out what it was. It was dog food. This had to be a damn joke. Of course I didn't actually eat the dog food. If anything, I spent my first few hours in that room looking for a way out. The door had no inside knob, and I couldn't get the food slot open from my end. Kicking it didn't do much good either. After that, I tried the window. The glass wouldn't break, no matter how hard I hit it. Even if I could break it, I'd need to get past the bars on the outside. But at least breaking the window would have been progress. Hell, if it came down to it, I could have used the glass shards to kill myself and deny Palmer the pleasure of doing it. The vent that had the gas come through was bolted to the wall. There was no way I could get it off. The ceiling was a solid mass. The carpets wouldn't come off, and it felt like the floors beneath them were solid concrete. The walls would not break or budge when I tried to break the drywall. With everything I tried, my efforts grew more and more frantic. I cycled through escape points, trying to find something that worked, and when that failed, I'd retry something else until I got so tired that I fell asleep on the rough carpet. I spent days like that, desperately searching for a way out, and every day my panic grew worse and worse. It was the second or third day that I started to cry. I pounded on the door, screaming so that someone on the other end might hear me. Let me out! There was no response. No sound from the other side of the door. If someone was listening, they didn't bother giving me any reaction. The only human interaction I had was during my feedings. Those came once per day. Someone would open the slot and casually nudge a tray through with their foot. It was always the same pink bowl with the same mushy dog food. They never spoke. I never saw any part of them, aside from a pair of black boots. I imagined that it was probably Haruka, but I really couldn't be sure. I drink the water, but what goes in has to eventually go out. It was on the first day that I picked out the corner of the room I'd need to use to take care of my own bodily functions. The room wasn't large enough to escape the smell, but after a while, I hate to say that I got used to it. I still refused to eat the food. I figured that Palmer's plan was to keep me in that room until I'd lost my mind completely. Then, when I was at my lowest, he'd move me into the next phase of his operation. If escape wasn't an option, then maybe death was. It wouldn't have been preferable to anything else, so I planned on starving myself. Every day, the food and water bowls would be pushed in. I'd drink the water but leave the food. When I eventually fell asleep, I'd wake up to find the bowls and tray missing. I figured they were gassing me while I slept, to keep me sedated then collecting their things. They didn't do anything else to clean the room up. They just let me live in my own filth. Later in the day, the bowl would be pushed through the slot in the door again. The water would be refilled. The food sat there unchanged. They hadn't even swapped it out. It sat in the bowl, congealed and disgusting. But there was nothing else to eat, and my hunger was getting to the point that it was physically painful. 
after seeing it come back the first two times. I took the bowl and emptied it into the corner I used to piss and crap. Might as well cut out the middleman, right? On the third day, I woke up to see my corner empty, and I knew what was coming. I felt my heart sinking into my chest and dreaded the coming mealtime. When the slot beneath the door opened and the tray was pushed in, I wasn't surprised a bit by what I saw. That same disgusting food scraped off the carpet along with my own feces. They stopped removing the bowl after that, and it was around two more days before I was too hungry to care anymore. Days blended together and passed in a haze. There was nothing to break up the monotony. No way out. No one to talk to. No way to die. I read about solitary confinement once, 23 hours alone in a cell, and one hour alone in a yard. I used to think that was some of the worst torture you could inflict on a person, but this was worse. There really was no one. I was alone. I wasn't sure if I was talking to myself or hearing my own voice in my head. Sometimes the panic would strike me so hard that I'd start screaming. I'd claw at the doors around feeding time, begging someone to talk to me, to show me that I wasn't alone. There was nothing. I would have even welcomed Haruka's cold chuckle. Most of the time I'd lay on the ground trying to sleep, since that was the only escape I got. Even that was tainted. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw the faces of the people I'd lost. Friends, strangers, all of them haunted me. Casey Banks and her daughter, a good woman trying to do the right thing and punished for it. I wondered if they were dead, or perhaps they were both in the same situation I was. James, Brian, and their son Chris, murdered by Haruka because I'd gotten them involved. Maybe if I'd left them alone, things would have turned out differently. Randall Smithers, whatever happened to his wife and son? Were they dead, just like he was? Just like Aphrodite's crew? Hell, Aphrodite herself was probably dead too. Everyone was dead. It was only me. Me alone in a damn room, slowly losing my mind. Day after day after day. The sky grew bright. The sky went dark. The food was pushed through a slot under the door, and sometimes I'd beg like a dog for the person on the other side to acknowledge me, but they never did. I'd sit there, crying and screaming, until my voice went hoarse. Then I'd drink the water from the bowl and scoop the dog food into my mouth with my bare hands. Everything stopped mattering. The corner I used as a bathroom stopped being just a corner. The room stank. I was a mess but I didn't care anymore. I was losing my damn mind. What was it that Palmer had said? He was going to break me? Maybe he was going to do it after all. He'd done it to others, hadn't he? He'd done it to Ashley. What was going to stop him from doing that to me too? Oh God. Ashley. I remember the way she'd moved. The way she'd talked. Had she gone through this too? How long had she stayed in isolation? What else had Palmer done to her? I remembered the sight of her mutilated hands, and it sent me into another spiral of raw panic. Just the thought of there being more to this hell was too much for me. Before I knew it, I was screaming again. Tears were streaming down my cheeks. Oh God, no. No, no, no. 
No more. No more of any of this. No more. How much time had I been in that room? More than days? Weeks? Months? I couldn't tell. I truly could not tell, and it just wouldn't end. No matter what I did, it just wouldn't end. I slammed my head against the door. I kicked at the walls. I clawed at the carpet trying to find some way out, but there was nothing. Oh God. This was what it felt like to go insane. I don't remember the gas being used on me, or much of anything predating waking up outside of the room for the first time. The bars around me were so much closer and so much thinner. The metal floor was cold against my skin, and it took me a few moments to realize that I was no longer in my room. Golden twilight shone through a large window into an open kitchen. I spotted a chrome stove and a white tile floor. I was still wet from being washed and felt the weight of a collar around my neck and heard someone whimpering beside me. I looked over to see a face I only barely recognized. Casey's eyes were sunken in, and she looked half-starved. She was naked, and I could see her ribs against her skin. She hugged herself tight. I could see a collar around her neck, hot pink and made of leather. She'd noticed me, but she hadn't said a word. Casey? I said. My own voice was hoarse from my screaming. I pushed myself against the cage. For the first time in a very long time, I felt relief. She was alive. Palmer hadn't killed her. Casey didn't even look at me, and as I tried to speak again, my voice came out as an agonized scream. All of my muscles felt like they were spasming. My heart seemed to stop in my chest. I collapsed, panting heavily as the sudden shock had passed, and as I did, I heard a familiar cold chuckle from the corner of my eye. I saw Haruka coming into view. Good doggies, don't speak unless spoken to, she crooned. In her hand, I saw a small remote. Then maybe you should shut the hell up, I growled. I got shocked again, but it was worth it. Now, now, I thought that time alone might have straightened you out, Palmer said. I could hear his footsteps as he approached Haruka. Perhaps you need another month in there? I could see him grinning, and I hesitated before going silent. I thought so. Palmer took the remote from Haruka before giving her a playful pat on the rear. Go and let Dove out of her cage. Haruka glanced back at him, a sweet smile on her lips, before she sauntered over towards Casey's cage. I watched her bend down and produce a key from her pocket. She unlocked the heavy padlock that kept Casey's crate shut, then coaxed her out. I watched as my friend crawled out on all fours, still shaking and trying not to sob as she did. I saw the scratches and bruises on her body from where she'd been beaten. I could see them on her back, on her thighs, and even on her throat, beneath the collar. I looked at her in horror, and I couldn't look away. Every mark told a story of some unspeakable abuse committed by Palmer. Every mark made me want to kill him just a little bit more. Good pup, Palmer said. Sit up so our new guest can see you. Casey did as told. Look at her. This is the start of domestication. Palmer continued. You see, 
It's surprisingly easy to break down a person. All of us think that we're above it, but we're really not. Then there's the fear. A healthy dose of it to keep a pup in line so she won't resist. No matter what you do to her. His hand rested on Casey's head. He gently pulled it closer to him until her head was inches from his groin. Would you like a demonstration from our little dove here? Her name is Casey, you sick moron, I snarled. My voice was cut off by another electric shock that left me screaming. I lost control of my bladder and collapsed against the cage, gasping for breath and still shaking from the pain. I could see the sparks coming from it from the corner of my eye. The collar is to help you teach obedience, Palmer said. It's not unlike a cattle prod. It's a custom job. I paid good money for it. It won't kill you. Not unless you're submerged. But from what I've seen, it doesn't feel pleasant either. Why don't you try one on yourself? I growled. He just giggled in response. You're so defiant. Even after a month in isolation? You'll be a tough nut to crack, just like your friend Aphrodite. But I'll break you both in time. Just like I broke your friend here. Just like I've broken everyone else. He tousled Casey's hair. And then the fun will begin. Get your damn hand off her, you freak, I snarled. Again, I was pressed up against the wall of the cage, eyes locked onto Palmer's. Oh? He approached my cage slowly and crouched down in front of it. His face was just outside the bars. Perhaps you'd like to express your loyalty in person. I spit at him, and it landed on his cheek. Palmer shot backwards as if he'd been struck. His hand went to where my saliva had hit him. The collar shocked me again, but I wasn't done yet. As the pain subsided, I screamed at Palmer. My voice was shaking from rage and pain. Touch her again, you miserable incel, and I swear I'll kill you and burn this damn place to the ground. Palmer's smile faded for a moment. You're a freak forcing his depraved fetishes onto people because no one else on the planet would give you the time of day, and I promise you that when I am out of here, when I've killed you, no one is going to give a shit except for your worthless psycho whore. And you had to train her for half her life to even get that out of her. Palmer glared at me. Haruka held the remote up, but hesitated to shock me again. The flash of anger in his eyes brought me more satisfaction than I could say. I couldn't beat the crap out of him, but I'd still struck a nerve. Casey was looking up at me with wide eyes, silently begging me not to say anything more. Well, Palmer said softly. I could hear the barely concealed rage in his voice. Perhaps solitary did less to curb your undesirable traits than I had hoped. I can see there's only one way to get through to you. He glanced over at Haruka. Go to my study, please. Bring me a sword. Try not to break this one. Yes, sir, Haruka said before she took off. Palmer took a handkerchief from his pocket and wiped off his face. Do you know why I like swords, Andrea? I like them because they're dramatic. They send a very clear message, one that cannot be misinterpreted. Casey was shaking. Her eyes were locked onto mine. I could see the tears streaming down her cheeks. It's a pity. This one was... quite nice. 
I thoroughly enjoyed her company, and I had thought I might make some decent money off of her. But she has admittedly been far more trouble than she's worth. Haruka returned, a sheathed sword in hand. I watched as she helped Palmer fix it to his belt. He drew it slowly, reverently. Casey had her chance to run. She didn't. She knelt before him, too afraid to fight her fate, even when we both realized what Palmer was going to do. No! Again I was pressed up against the cage. Stop it! Stop it! Leave her the hell alone! Leave! I was cut off as Haruka shocked me again. This time the pain didn't fade. Palmer's smile returned as he watched me writhe and squirm in my cage. Casey only continued to stare blankly at me. She did that right up until Palmer brought the blade down on her neck. I don't know what I was screaming at then. The electricity coursing through my body, or the sight of Casey's beheading. The first chop at her head forced her down to the floor. Palmer's second must have killed her. Her head only seemed to be barely hanging on. Her body was twitching. Her eyes were still wide, still alive. Blood and urine spread from her body as she died. His third and fourth chops finished the job, and at last her head rolled away from her twitching corpse. Haruka picked it up and set it in front of my cage. I was still trembling from the electricity that had shot through my body, but my eyes were fixated on Palmer. My teeth still clenched in rage. Not even an attempt at protest, Palmer crooned. He gave Casey's twitching corpse a kick. A shame. She really was making such great progress. Bastard, I said through gritted teeth. Palmer just glared at me. You made me kill her, he said and offered the blade to Haruka who quietly wiped it off for him. I can see you'll need a few more months in solitary. After that, we'll try this again. In the meantime... You've wasted my time, so I'll waste yours. Enjoy the view from your new living space while I'm gone. The sword was sheathed into his belt again, and he gestured for Haruka to leave with him. I was alone again, staring at Casey's corpse as I sat in the cage, trembling with rage and fresh grief. The light in her eyes had faded, and now she too was gone. All of this pain... The hell I'd gone through, the people I'd lost. I'd done it all just to try and save her, and now she was dead too. Yet above all my anger, I saw the opportunity I'd been handed. It was a while ago when I'd seen the video of the dog's escape. Someone had passed it around the office because it was cute. The video had featured a dog in a crate. As soon as the owner stepped out, the dog began to pull at the bottom of the cage, where the bars met the floor. It took him a few tries, but he was able to bend the metal and create an opening at the bottom that he could squeeze through and escape. Alone in that cage, I looked at the metal bars around me and tried to squeeze them together. The metal was cheap. I couldn't imagine Palmer had had many escapes before, not with the state of fear he'd induced in his victims. I was afraid too, but my anger was stronger than my fear. 
As the sky grew dark, I realized that Palmer meant to leave me with Casey's corpse all night. I'm sure in his mind he thought he'd come back to find me a sobbing, frantic mess. He was so sure he'd break me. Maybe he had. As the sky went dark and the silence set in, I slipped my fingers under the bars of the cage and set about pulling upwards. It took a while, but the metal did bend. It wasn't easy to make an exit big enough for me to crawl through, but I still did it. I pulled myself out of that cage and onto the kitchen floor, into the pool of drying blood beside Casey's corpse. I tried not to look at her or touch her body. I tried not to think about what he'd done to her, or worse, what he'd do to me. My heart was racing as I searched for footsteps coming to investigate what I was doing, and nobody came. I was well enough alone. Slowly I got to my feet. Palmer had mentioned Aphrodite. She was still alive, and she probably was in just about as bad a shape as I was. But if she was in solitary, then maybe she wasn't as broken as Casey had been. I almost made a rush to head upstairs, but I paused first. My eyes settled on the nearby stove, and I had an idea. There was no quiet way to pull out a stove, but Palmer and Haruka were clearly occupied elsewhere, so nobody seemed to notice the noise. I only needed to pull it out far enough to reach the gas line anyways. I used a kitchen knife I stole to cut through the rubber hose, and it wasn't long before I could smell natural gas. I remembered the sparks I'd seen when Haruka had shocked me and reached up to the collar on my neck. There was no easy way to remove it, but I still had a knife, and I had time. Once I had the collar off, I dropped it behind the stove and pushed it back into place. I took one final look over at Casey's body, before I turned to leave the kitchen entirely, the knife still in my hand. I crept through the house, considering that Palmer hadn't exactly left me with clothes. I'm sure I wasn't easy to miss, but there didn't seem to be anyone around. Outside the windows, I could see a few flashlights from patrolling guards, but no one inside. I saw firelight from Palmer's study and figured he was inside. I gave him a wide berth, and instead went for the upstairs, up to the solitary rooms. There were countless identical doors with slots at the bottom. I could see small consoles beside them, no doubt to control when the people inside were gassed. A cart sat in the middle of the hall, and I knew what it was there for. I heard a door open and descended the stairs a bit to keep out of sight. I poked my head out to see who was coming. I saw Haruka stepping out of one of the rooms, a gas mask covering her face. She carried a tray with a bowl in it. She clearly hadn't seen me. I had half a mind to try and sneak up on her, but the memory of my previous encounters with her was enough to convince me not to try it. Instead, all I did was watch as she put her tray on the cart, then headed down the room to the next hall. I watched her carefully. She scanned a key each time she entered a room. I watched her set it down on the cart before going inside no doubt to minimize the risk of someone inside one of the rooms ambushing her and stealing it. I watched Haruka until she began coming down the other side of the hallway, towards me. After that, I spent less time peeking out to look at her, and more time listening, waiting for the opportune moment to catch her off guard. 
Time slowly ticked by as her cart got closer and closer to me and the stairs. I peeked out and checked its position whenever I was sure she wasn't in the hall. She was only a few doors down, one more room than I'd have the drop on her. I heard her footsteps as she stepped into the hall again. I heard the wheels of the cart rolling forwards. There was a beep as the key card was read. The click of an unlocked door, then Haruka went inside. I moved. I could see a nude woman, unconscious inside the room, and Haruka standing over her as she bent down to recover the bowl. She didn't even seem to notice when I grabbed the door and closed it on her. I only saw her head turn in the moment before it closed. Then came the frantic pounding on the door. Enjoy your stay, I said under my breath, before I turned to spot the keycard on her cart. I snatched it up. Taped to the cart, I saw a piece of paper with a list of names and room numbers. Aphrodite was on there. So was I. And so was Casey. Casey. My heart skipped a beat. Don't think about Casey. I looked at the number beside Aphrodite's name. Room 36. I glanced at the console by the door I had trapped Haruka behind, confirmed that it was room 51. I took off down the hall looking for 36. The hallways were almost labyrinthian. How many people had Palmer taken? How many people were trapped in these rooms? I only stopped my search for one. I only stopped my search once when I saw an open room that looked like a laundry. I paused, staring inside before taking a closer look. There were clothes of all sorts in there. There were clothes of all sorts there, tossed into a few different bins. I glanced at the note on the wall. Collection every three months. Anything that cannot be donated is to be burned. Donated. These must have been the clothes of the people Palmer had taken, which meant my clothes were probably in there. I glanced back out into the hall. Haruka wasn't getting free anytime soon. I had a moment. Putting on actual clothes made me feel almost human again. I even found my own leather jacket, although I couldn't find anything else that was absolutely mine. I had to guess on what clothes Aphrodite would fit into. It was better than nothing, though. Fully dressed, I stepped back out into the hall and resumed my search for her room. It didn't take me much longer to find it. I used the keycard to open the door, and I was greeted by the sight of a figure sitting in the corner. Even in her sorry state, I still recognized Aphrodite, and her head shot up to look at me almost immediately. She sounded groggy, like she'd just woken up. Andrea? She murmured. The one and only, I replied. I tossed the clothes to her. Put these on. I, I thought... I thought he took you. He said... He did, I replied. His mistake. Come on, I locked Haruka in a room, and I don't know how much longer she's going to stay in there. We're short on time. Aphrodite stood slowly, then began to dress herself. Oh my god, you're a sight for sore eyes, she murmured. She kept glancing up at me, as if she was confirming that I was real. What's our play? I tossed the key card to her. She didn't catch it. I've got a knife. You've got the key, and I caused a gas leak in the kitchen, so if Haruka tries to use that shock collar on me again, she's in for a very nasty surprise, I said. 
Okay, but do you have a plan? Aphrodite asked. Get everyone out of the building. I spotted a small perimeter guard, but I think they'll be more interested in the house when it goes up. Nobody's going to miss this place going up. It'll draw some attention, and maybe some help. A beacon, Aphrodite said, as she picked up the keycard. God, you have really lost it, haven't you? Just get everyone that you can out, I said, and from down the hall I heard a voice. I recognized one of them as Haruka's. Go, I'll keep her busy. Aphrodite stepped outside of her room before she took off, stopping at each door to open it. I headed towards the sound of Haruka's voice, and I hid behind a corner. She's not far, I heard Haruka say. She's probably going for the girl in 36. I saw a man step around the corner. He didn't see me at first, not until I jumped him and drove my knife into his throat. I'd never killed anyone before, and maybe once I would have hesitated. Not anymore. Not after all I'd seen. It was disturbingly simple, trivial even. As I felt the man's hot blood spill out over my fingers, I held him between myself and Haruka. I saw the gun in her hands, aimed at me, but she couldn't get a shot. You think you're clever? She hissed. Smarter than you, I replied. Her eyes narrowed before her twisted grin returned. I saw her hand dip into her pocket. The gun remained trained on me, but I saw the remote to my shot collar in her hand. We'll see. Part of me wanted to say something. But honestly, I was happy to just enjoy what happened next. The explosion violently rocked the entire building. Several feet behind Haruka, the floor erupted with a massive fireball. Haruka was thrown forwards, looking back with wide, frightened eyes, trying to shield her face. Master! She tried to stand, her attention momentarily diverted from me, and I took my chance. As the hallway around us began to burn, I thrust the dead man towards her, slamming him into her as I tore the knife from his throat and tried to plunge it into hers. Her gun was pushed aside. The weight of the corpse crashed down on her and she frantically tried to push it off. Before I slammed her into the wall, my knife was up against her throat, and with my other hand, I'd grabbed her by the wrist. In the firelight, her eyes reflected nothing but pure rage. She slammed her head into mine. I saw stars, but I didn't let up. I pushed the knife closer and closer to her throat, pressing it into her skin, before she pushed me back. She tried to level the gun at my head. The knife in my hand shot out, piercing her arm. With all my strength, I forced her arm back against the wall, pinning it with the knife. Haruka let out a pained cry. The gun slipped from her hand, and I kicked it away from her. She kicked me hard in the stomach, forcing me off of her, and with a cry of pain, she ripped the knife from her arm. No, no, you won't stop me. You won't keep me from Master. You won't destroy his work. I'll kill you first. I'll cut your pretty little throat. She slammed into me. The knife clutched in her hand. Her teeth were gritted in rage. I held her by the wrist and it took all of my strength to keep her from driving that knife into my throat. Haruka giggled, her eyes wild with fury as she went in for the kill. Then I heard it. The sudden gunshot. Blood gushed from Haruka's throat, her hand pressed against her neck. She sucked in a wet, strangled gasp. 
Her eyes went wide as both of us looked over to see who had intervened. Aphrodite stood in the hall, the gun in her hands and her eyes fixated on Haruka. Gurk. Blood tripled past Haruka's lips. She stumbled away from me, just a step. The knife was still clenched tightly in her hand. She stared at Haruka and tried to make one more step forward. She tried to raise the knife, but all she did was fall to her knees. Not so funny now, is it, bitch? Aphrodite growled, and as if on cue, Haruka fell forwards. Her legs were still twitching. The blood pooled around her head as she tried to suck in her final, raspy breaths. Then she too was gone. Aphrodite glared down at Haruka's corpse, then back up to me. Palmer, she said as she stepped over her body. She offered me the gun. The helicopter outside is spinning up. I think he's making a run for it. You'll have an easier time with this. I took the gun and nodded at her. Thanks. Get the girls and get out. This place is coming down. No shit, Aphrodite replied. She turned and vanished down the hall once more, and I followed her. I could see several scared, catatonic people, mostly women but a few men standing in the hallways. A few had taken the initiative to try and escape. Aphrodite had focused her attention on opening the remaining doors, but I had my own quarry. Around me, Palmer's mansion burned. The heat on my face and the gun in my hand reminded me of my purpose. I saw the door to his study hanging wide open, and I knew that he wasn't inside. I spotted a hallway leading past the stairs and through a parlor that was starting to burn. Beyond it, I saw an open door leading to a helipad and Palmer's cream-colored suit making a run for it. I broke into a sprint, trying to close the distance between us. I'd never fired a gun before, so my shots weren't exactly accurate, but they got the bastard's attention. He froze and ducked, but there was nowhere to hide. I could see the sword still clipped to his belt. His eyes fixated on me as I stepped out of the house. I told you I'd kill you, I said coldly. I kept the gun trained on him. Palmer's posture slowly relaxed. Kill me, he asked. His wry tone hid his rage. I didn't think that was how superheroes operated. Isn't it all about the pursuit of justice? You've killed everyone I love, I replied. You took my life away from me. Now I'm going to take yours. That is justice. He laughed. A laugh of both mad defiance and genuine humor. Take my life away. Please. You're nothing but a little girl playing make-believe. All you've caused me is a minor setback. I'll rebuild within the week. I'll find new girls. You haven't stopped a damn thing. You have no idea who you're dealing with. No. No, the only thing you've taken away from me is the satisfaction of feeling your crotch around my dick as I choke the life out of you. And right now, I don't much care how you die anymore. The gun appeared in his hand before I could react and he fired off three shots in quick succession. All of them missed, but I still scrambled to get out of the way. Take off, now, I heard Palmer yell. I saw him leaping up onto the helicopter, and fired off a quick shot at him. I heard a cry of pain and saw him clutch at his shoulder. The helicopter started to rise, and I sprinted towards it. I leapt and grabbed at the edge of it, 
forcing myself to climb up into it. I had to drop the gun to maintain my grip, but in that moment, I really didn't care. There was no logic in my actions, only pure adrenaline and hate. Palmer spun around, panic in his eyes, and a bloody rose blossoming on the shoulder of his suit. Just die already, he snarled. He tried to aim the gun at me, but I grabbed at his wrist, forcing it away from my face. Palmer didn't have the same strength that Haruka did. He couldn't overpower me as easily. The gun went off and from the corner of my eye, I saw blood splatter the window of the cockpit. The pilot slumped over, and as he did, I felt the helicopter begin to spin. Palmer lost his footing. The gun slipped out of his grasp. He crashed against one of the seats and braced himself for support. I punched him square in the jaw while he was open. He caught me with a backhand, then shoved me into the chair across from him. The helicopter began to spin faster, losing all control. The world passed by in a blur as Palmer threw his weight at me. His hands closed around my throat, trying to choke the life from me. I forced my legs in between us and pushed him off of me. Palmer lost his footing and stumbled, just a little bit. The handle of the sword jutted out of his belt, the same sword he'd used to kill Casey. He tried to regain his footing, and I brought my knee into his face before I pushed him back into a chair. Blood spurted from Palmer's nose, and his hands instinctively went to his wound. The sword on his belt was unguarded. I grabbed it and pulled it from its sheath. I saw Palmer's eyes widen as I did. He tried to move. He tried to fight back or escape. But I was faster. With all my rage, I drove the blade into his stomach. It passed clean through him and pinned him to the seat. The world spun past us, faster and faster. The wind screamed in my ears, but all I saw was Palmer. All I saw was the horror in his eyes. You want justice? I snarled. Well, here it is. From the corner of my eye, I saw the mansion, engulfed in flames, spinning past us as we spiraled towards it. I could still see the dark grass on the ground. Palmer was trapped, but I wasn't. All it took was a step back before the ground fell out beneath me. I crashed into the grass hard enough to leave me seeing stars. My body ached, but I was alive. I watched as Palmer's helicopter spun wildly in the air. could hear his terrified screams as it careened into his burning mansion. The brick exterior caved as the helicopter crashed into it, burying itself deep in the mansion. Flames shot up engulfing their new fuel, and I saw portions of the house collapsing around the house, burying Palmer alive within a tomb of his own greed. Even as the house collapsed, I could still hear him screaming. Even as the fires consumed him, he screamed, and it seemed like an eternity before they faded entirely. I'm sure it felt even longer for him. The inferno rose up into the sky like a beacon, and inevitably, it drew rescue. I found Aphrodite out front of the ruins of the house, along with dozens of scared, mostly nude people, and a few corpses of guards who'd gotten in her way. I remember the tired look in her eyes when she saw me, before she finally sank down into the grass. The worst of our ordeal was over, but there was so much more to get through. It took months 
before life seemed to return to something resembling normalcy. And even then, it was never truly the same. Details of Palmer's operation were kept out of the press. Aphrodite was pissed, but I wasn't surprised. She'd said it herself. The man had influence, and I'm sure he had enough to keep his good name intact. It hardly mattered to me. I took solace in knowing that Palmer burned for everything that he did. I saw to that myself. I don't sleep well. Too often I have nightmares about the things I've seen, the people I've lost and the horrors I've endured. So many people are gone, but I'm still alive. Randall's family and Annabelle Baker were among the people recovered from the mansion. I applied to adopt the latter. She doesn't have anyone else, and I suppose I feel responsible for her. At least Palmer didn't hurt her beyond solitary, but I know how bad that can be by itself. In the meantime, I've managed to get my stability back. I've returned to work, and I've retrieved my bike. Things may never be the same, but perhaps that's for the better. I see just how ugly the world can be, and now I know that I can make a difference. My friends and I, we were superheroes. Now it's just me, and I can't do it alone. I've asked Aphrodite to join me, and I hope she'll say yes. I have a few people in mind I might want to recruit for something of a team. I know how that sounds, but given the trouble I had with Palmer, a few new friends might not be a bad idea. Especially if I want to track down his friends. Because the world needs a beacon. Someone to stand up for what's right. Someone to answer when people call out in need. Someone to lead by example. My name is Andrea Andrews. I am the beacon. And I am a superhero.